I'm Kelsey. I'm Cassie. And I'm Nolan from SCP Weekly. We bring you news from on-site and off-site. And we share your love for the creative community that surrounds the SCP Wiki. Join us on Tuesdays for new episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube at SCP Weekly. The world we inhabit is not as free, or certain, or safe as you might think. The things that you believe to be unassailably evident are little more than shadows dancing behind a curtain, a masquerade crafted and dutifully upheld by an organization known as the Foundation. The file you are about to hear contains containment procedures, descriptions, testing logs, historical and in some cases first-hand accounts of the anomalous objects the Foundation serves to secure, contain, and protect. Its contents have been thoroughly scrutinized by the Ethics Committee and approved by the O5 Council for release to trusted associates of the Foundation. This is SCP Unredacted. Item number SCP-3125 Object Class Keter Special Containment Procedures SCP-3125 is kept inside Cognitohazard Containment Unit 3125 on the first floor of Site-41. This containment unit is a 10-meter by 15-meter by 3-meter cuboidal room clad in layers of lead, soundproofing, and telepathic shielding. Access is through an airlock system at one end of the containment unit. This airlock is programmed to allow only one person to enter the containment unit at a time and to remain locked until this person exits before allowing another person to enter. Under no circumstances may any coherent information be allowed to leave the containment unit. This includes written and electronic notes, photographs, audio and video recordings, sound, electromagnetic and particle-based signals, and psi emanations. During the exit cycle, a purge system rigged to the airlock flushes the occupant's memory by flooding the airlock with amnestic gas for three minutes. A senior anti-memetics division staff member must visit SCP-3125 every six weeks. End of file. Access granted. Item number SCP-3125 Object Class Keter Special Containment Procedures SCP-3125 is subject to inverted containment protocols and is present everywhere in reality except for those places which have been specifically purged of its influence. The interior of Cognitohazard Containment Unit 3125 on Site-41, where this document resides, is the only location in the world known to have been successfully purged in this way. This containment unit is a 10-meter by 15-meter by 3-meter cuboidal room clad in layers of lead, soundproofing material, and telepathic shielding. Access is through an airlock system at one end of the containment unit. This airlock is programmed to allow only one person to enter the containment unit at a time and to remain locked until this person exits before allowing another person to enter. Under no circumstances may any coherent information be allowed to leave the containment unit. This includes written and electronic notes, photographs, audio and video recordings, sound, electromagnetic and particle-based signals, 
and sigh emanations. A purge system rigged to the airlock flushes the occupant's memory by flooding the airlock with amnestic gas for three minutes during the exit cycle. An alternate SCP entry must be maintained in the main Foundation database, giving only the technical specifications of the containment unit, provisions for Senior Antimimetics Division staff to visit the unit's interior on a regular basis, and no description. Description SCP-3125 is an extremely large, highly aggressive, anomalous, metastasized meme complex originating externally to our reality, and now partially intersecting it. The entity is adapted for survival in an ideatic ecology considerably more violent and hostile than our own. Here, our own refers to human headspace, the set of all ideas which humans have or are biologically capable of having. Because humans have no natural exposure to ideas as aggressive as the entity, human minds have no protective evolutionary adaptations against it. Individuals possessed of the entity become incapable of entertaining weaker, conventional ideas and become instead wholly bodily subordinate to the purpose of serving and disseminating the core concepts of the entity. In addition, although undergoing no outwardly visible physical alteration, they cease to be externally recognizable as human. The entity is not yet entirely present in our reality. Upon its arrival, the highly interconnected nature of human knowledge exchange systems means that it will take no longer than 12 hours, possibly as few as 4 hours, to encompass, dominate, and replace all human thought. At this point, humanity as an abstract concept, along with all attendant abstracts such as civilization, culture, society, community, and family, will have ceased to exist. The Foundation terms such an eventuality an MK-class, end-of-the-world scenario. The Foundation possesses numerous proven techniques for arresting the spread of such aggressive idea complexes, but these are all rendered unworkable in practice by the entity's autonomic defensive response and boundary layer. Fully assembling a mental picture of the entity and perceiving its true shape causes the entity, in turn, to be able to perceive the observer. It then attacks the observer, killing them. The mechanism of the attack is unclear, but appears to be at least partially physical. Mental bystanders, individuals whose thoughts and ideas resemble those of the observer, are also attacked. This invariably includes the observer's entire extended research group, and often their close family. The attack has the net effect of erasing all knowledge, both of the entity and its attack from the world. This informational numbing effect performs a similar function to the anesthetic saliva of a mosquito's bite, enabling the entity to evade detection prior to its full incarnation. Foundation staff discovering the entity may be able to escape its attack via prompt use of amnestic medication to erase their knowledge of it. In either case, the net result is that the interior of a suitably shielded containment unit is the only location where it's safe to observe record, or even acknowledge the existence of the entity. Outside of such a containment unit, a true written description of the entity would constitute a lethal cognitive hazard. The entity could be effectively neutralized using a machine proposed by the late Dr. Bartholomew Hughes called an irreality amplifier. However, 
as well as requiring tremendous material resources. This machine could not be constructed without its builders understanding why it was being built, which would require an understanding of the entity, which would prove fatal to the project. No means of neutralizing the entity using only the resources in this room is known. History Due to the described defense mechanism, the entity's observation history is almost entirely missing. In particular, it is unclear exactly how this containment unit came to be built and how these containment procedures were established. Much data has been accrued in this containment unit over the course of successive visits by Foundation researchers. This data was brought from the outside in the hope of being useful and left here in accordance with containment procedures. In addition to this database entry, the reader will find multiple electronic copies of the Foundation database, academic datasets of all kinds, and extensive public news archives. As is to be expected, much of this data is not germane to the topic of containing the entity. Nevertheless, correlation and analysis by successive visitors has allowed the following facts to emerge. 1. Although the entity is not yet fully present in our reality, its indirect effects Four shocks. For example, SCP, 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 and SCP are easily discovered by any well-equipped memetics research project. 2. Memetics research is, today, a much diminished science from when it was at its peak. In mid-2008, there existed more than 400 institutions pursuing research likely to uncover the entity including government agencies, military branches, private corporations, independent laboratories, university research projects, and notable amateur groups. Many of these were GOIs or internal divisions within GOIs. None of these groups still exist except for the Foundation's anti-memetics division. 3. Almost nobody in the world is consciously aware of this decline and explanations for the disappearance of these groups have not been forthcoming. Simple deduction gives that all of these groups eventually discovered the entity and were consumed by it, and that this is, in fact, the inevitable fate of all competent memetics research. The anti-memetics division's persistence is attributed to its specialist training and its ready access to reliable amnestic medication. Despite this, the Division too has shrunk considerably in recent years, from a reported staff of well over 4,000 people in 2012 to, as of September 2015, 125. This figure is on track to reach zero before the end of 2015. Over the same period, the Division's physical worldwide presence has similarly shrunk, from a network of sites and smaller outposts on every continent to the single site, Site-41. In particular, the Division's headquarters at Site-167 are now missing from the Division's collective memory and presumed neutralized by the Entity's concealment response. Addendum Further analysis of the available data, specifically architectural diagrams of Site-41, indicates the existence of a second containment unit on Site-41, conforming to the same basic design philosophy as this one. This second unit, S041B30000, was built 210 meters below ground level. 
It features identical broad-spectrum informational cladding, but has more than 1,000 times the volume of Cognitohazard Containment Unit 3125, along with an amnestic airlock large enough to ingest a 20-foot equivalent unit shipping container. Information relating to the date of construction and purpose of the unit is absent from Foundation records and is presumed to have been deliberately erased. The unit itself is hermetically sealed and has been for an indeterminate period of time. Regardless of the unit's intended purpose, it, like any such containment unit, is capable of acting as a shelter from the entity. Addendum 2 And the rest, hopefully, is blindingly obvious. SO41B30000 was originally constructed to house a long-term project to construct Hughes' irreality amplifier. While that's been going on, the rest of us have been fighting an unconscious war in order to buy time. We've been losing, but losing as slow as humanly possible. The time we've bought is now up. It's an extremely bad sign that nobody inside the unit's broken the seal yet, but there's no ground left for us to cede. There's no more bodies to throw into the entity's maw to slow it down. Va is here, ready or not. I'm going to go to the unit and use the machine. I think I can get the information out through the airlock. I think I can get to the vault alive. This was the plan. It's become garbled in the retelling because of variables, but I know that this was my plan because I know myself. What else could it have been? Standard procedure is that I have to tell you what to do next if this doesn't work. That's the asynchronous research covenant. But I don't have a good picture of who you can even be reading this and alive. In your scenario, there's no machine. Hughes is missing, I'm dead, and the site's ruined. And how'd you even get in here? Can you be Foundation? Are you conscious? Is there a single word of this which you comprehend? You live in a world bathed with SCP-3125. That's the lost condition. I can't help someone who doesn't exist. Marion Wheeler, Chief of Antimimetics, 30 November, 2015. Addendum 3 I found your body, and finding your body was a powerfully disorienting sensation for me. I don't mind admitting. I used to know a Marion. During the brief period in which I knew her, she wasn't one to admit defeat as easily as you. Still, that was a long time ago. Far be it from me to tell you your business, but I fear you missed a trick. From the evidence I can see, this was never the only Antimimetics Division site. There were others. I imagine they're now all effectively invisible to most passers-by, of course, just like this one. But I presume that they, just like this one, still physically exist. Your plan, I think, was in place for longer than you know. And since you weren't at liberty to retain its details, you put it into action more than once. There is another vault fitting the description, truck-sized amnestic airlock and all. S-167-001-6183. Site-167 is a non-entity, of course, which is most likely why you missed it. It's likely ruined, and it's quite definitely a long goddamn way from here on foot. But still, I think it's better than half a chance. I could die on this boondoggle too, naturally, as the world's become something of a horror show of late. In any case, I trust that anybody following in my footsteps and reading these additional words will have the presence of mind to pursue the same basic strategy. 
still existing despite everything. Adam Wheeler, Interloper, 4 May 2017. End of file. Who the fuck infiltrates a senior foundation official's home while they're home? Marion Wheeler lives deep in a coniferous forest, a long drive from the nearest major city, and a long drive in the opposite direction from Site 41. It's late, last thing, and she's reading in bed when she hears the muffled, unmistakable click of her front door being unlocked. She looks up and stares blankly at the wall for a second while listening to soft footsteps moving into the hallway. She marks her place and reaches for a Foundation-issued phone. She has no permanent security staff at home. The division is understaffed and trained operatives are in much more serious need on site. But the building and grounds have beefy electronic countermeasures. They, she discovers, have all been disabled, along with the sensors and cameras. She was not notified that this had happened. Whoever did it had a valid code. Who, though? The Foundation had enemies. True, the list of credible motivated enemies is surprisingly short, and the list of groups stupid enough to try to kill or capture someone at her level is shorter. But it's far from empty, and it's not actually so hard a feat. Not too many people below 05 level are privileged to travel in motorcades. The real trick, the impossible trick, is to avoid unholy retaliation. But what if you really think you can? What if you've decided it's worth it? Wheeler triggers the silent alarm. She sets her phone back down on the nightstand and collects her gun. She rolls out of bed, tucks a few pillows in her place, moves silently to her bedroom door, and stands beside it, listening and thinking. This door, her bedroom door, can't be opened silently. It creaks like hell, so if she goes through it, she'll have to be ready to draw attention. There's an attic, but access is out there on the landing, and again, can't be operated silently. There's no alternate route to ground level other than jumping from the window, and someone has to be covering it. Even if she landed in the bushes alive, she'd still have to break the perimeter with a sprained ankle. A better question than who is how many. She may already be straight up dead, simply due to numbers. If the attackers tread cautiously and try to flush her out, she figures she can home alone her way through perhaps eight of them before running out of luck. If they rush the second floor and have armor, she might be overwhelmed by as few as two, even with a staircase acting as a choke point. All of this, naturally, assumes that the attackers aren't anomalous. If they are, and they're not in the, say, 30% of anomalies which can be neutralized simply by shooting them in the center mass and head, she may be fundamentally helpless, even after the response team shows up, which will be, at best, ten minutes from now. A creaking. This damned house. Someone is coming up the stairs, making no effort to be quiet about it. A soft tread, though, as if they removed their shoes. Just one of them? That barely makes sense. With five seconds grace, Wheeler casts around the dark room for a second weapon. She knows there are knitting needles downstairs in the lounge and knives, good ones, in the kitchen. But she can't get to them. It's too late. The door's opening. It seems like the man's trying to say something as he comes in, but he only gets as far as I. 
and it's done. He's flat on his face, cheek pressed into deep cream carpet, with Wheeler on his back, pinning both his wrists with her knees. She sights urgently back down the stairs for a second. There's no one there. She prods him in the other cheek with the muzzle of the gun. You speak, you die, she hisses. You try to move, you die. She glances at the windows, checks the stairs again, listening intently. There's no sound. There's nothing to be seen. The man is 50 and lanky. He wears an expensive dark suit tailored to his build. He has angular features, thick, graying hair, and rimless spectacles, now quite possibly bent out of shape by their sudden impact with the floor. He wears discreet platinum jewelry, a wristwatch, cufflinks, and a ring. The two of them halt like that, a tableau. He makes no attempt to move, although he does look askance at Wheeler, as best he can, given his dislodged glasses. Wheeler asks, where are the others? It's just me, Marion, he answers. Who are you? He says nothing for a moment, but his expression slowly, subtly drops. I, uh, well, well, it really happened, didn't it? I always wondered. Who are you? There's a monster that follows you around and eats your memories, the man says. SCP-4987. You drip-feed it inconsequential trivia so it doesn't go after anything important. You watch game shows, the book you were reading just now, on your nightstand. It's a trivia book, right? Wheeler says nothing to confirm or deny this, although it is true. At feeding time, the entity manifests like a bright gold-white spot in the corner of her eye. It's gone now. She's already put the rest of it together. It's all mind-bogglingly, insultingly obvious. With a well-suppressed but still detectable note of dismay, she asks, What's your name? Adam, he says. Adam Wheeler. Obviously, she has the man detained. She instructs her people to interrogate him, lightly, and to run deep background research on every word he utters. While for her part, she stands far back from the investigation to avoid contamination. She resists the urge to interfere, particularly to visit Adam and personally demand answers. She goes to her office, curls up on the couch there, and tries to catch some sleep, but doesn't succeed in any real sense. Seven hours later, a foundationer knocks on her office door, bringing an inch-thick block of printouts and a paralyzingly strong cup of coffee. Wheeler takes the first drink, accepting it as a kind of authentication step before letting the man in. She moves back to the couch and sits, hunched over the drink for warmth, inhaling its fumes. The man settles heavily into a chair opposite. He is a misleadingly stocky, perpetually unshaven individual, somewhere just shy of 40, and inarguably the most dangerous person on the site. He's the division's physical fitness and combat instructor, and the leader of their solitary mobile task force. His name is Alex Gauss. They, uh, he says, figured I should be the one to present their results, even though I didn't research one line of it, because we get along. Their words, personally, I don't see it. Wheeler stays focused on the coffee. Who is he? Gauss opens the first page of the report, more for show than anything, then closes it again. He's your husband. Every word checks out. There's limitless physical evidence. Half of the division knows him socially, including me. 
I credit your diligence and adherence to protocol, but the bottom line is that SCP-4987 got hungry. Wheeler nods. This assessment matches her own, pieced together overnight from gut reactions and analysis of the plain facts. Where the hell else did her name come from? She wasn't born Wheeler, but she had to get independent verification. She asks, has this happened before? No. Could it happen again? Gauss shrugs. You'd know better than anyone. I would. I do. And I can tell you this. I have SCP-4987 trained to follow me at my heel. I feed it according to a strict regimen. It eats only the memories I say it's okay to eat. A rapidly progressive, universally fatal memory parasite made chronic and then domesticated. And now, what? It suddenly breaks training? That adds up? If you say it doesn't add up, it doesn't add up, Gauss says, cautiously. But speaking from field experience, anything can happen twice. Wheeler's waited long enough and takes a long pull from the coffee. She stares into the coiling steam as if trying to see the future. But who is he? She asks again. At this point, you know him better than I do. What's he like? Do you like him? Gauss grimaces extravagantly. This is the great-great-grandmother of all loaded questions. Wheeler looks him in the eye and says, Tell me your personal impression of Adam Wheeler. Direct order. He's a nice enough guy. Nice enough? Gauss clicks his tongue. I don't like him, he admits, personally all that much. We're civil, but he'll always be a little too smug and a little bit too clever. He just grates. Would I throw someone in a cell for that? No. Do I like him? You, Gauss begins, then stops. He looks away, and over time, a soft smile develops on his face, one which Wheeler doesn't recall ever seeing before, not in a working relationship going back years. Yeah, he says. Yeah. He's the one. Full name, Adam Bellamy Wheeler. Born February 27th, 1962, in Henge, Derbyshire, United Kingdom, to Rosemary Lee Wheeler, Nee Whist, and Jonathan Jack Philip Wheeler. No siblings. Early education, Henge Church of England, primary school. Matlock All Saints Secondary School. Demonstrated great musical acuity from an early age. By age 16, had begun to be recognized as one of the most gifted classical violinists of his generation. Attended the Royal College of Wheeler skips three pages. After sustaining a minor injury while on tour in he encountered SCP-4051, which had infested a wing of the hospital where he received treatment. SCP-4051 was protected by an unusual form of antimimetic camouflage to which Wheeler, like an estimated 1 in 145,000 individuals worldwide, was and remains immune. His attempt to alert authorities to the infestation's presence was intercepted by a Foundation listening station. Operative Marion A. Hutchinson, 100A-1-9331, then a field agent based in another page, resistant to conventional memory erasure procedures. Hutchinson applied successfully for an exemption, arguing that even with his memories left intact, it would be impossible for Wheeler to share the details of SCP-4051. They subsequently became romantically involved. Oh, they subsequently became romantically involved, did they? 
Tell me more, you featureless grace fear of a biographer. I'm hooked now. The biography is contentless beyond this point. Adam Wheeler's life spent touring, playing, lecturing, and occasionally conducting, writing, and composing is documented in exhaustive, pointless detail. He withstands background checks and surveillance and consistently demonstrates himself to represent zero risk of leak. He eventually receives the extremely low clearance level normally granted to long-term Foundation external partners of Foundationers. They get married. She takes his name, which she, reading, considers faintly unrealistic. Blah, blah. There's nothing about his personality, nothing about their relationship, no content. She remembers acquiring SCP-4051. There was no one there. She remembers nothing. Up until the end of the third round of questioning, Adam Wheeler assumes good faith. He figures the repetition is a due diligence tick, a corporate procedural requirement. It's only when they start over from What's Your Name with a brand new interviewer for the fourth time that he finally gets it. They don't like him, and they don't care what he thinks his name is. They're trying to grind him down until he can't think, until he's just dust particles they can sift through for data. He reacts badly to this realization. He asks for his wife, and asks for his wife, and they ignore him, and they ignore him, and she persistently fails to appear, until it becomes a cold form of torture. The questions keep coming and nothing stops them, not answering truthfully, not not answering, not lying, not rambling off on tangents. They don't stop until he begins falling asleep in the middle of his own sentences. He wakes up in a standard humanoid containment unit, a stackable one-bedroom apartment with holographic fake windows, impregnable walls, and extensive discrete modifications for the security and monitoring of anomalous entities. This one is on the first basement level, but he can't tell that. The bright, quote, light, unquote, pouring in through the main living area window is authentic enough to tan. He wakes up on the couch with a start, feeling creaky and dehydrated. He realizes that he slept in his suit and that his suit is creased. He hates that. That sensation of not looking his best, or at least presentable. That's going to gnaw away at him until he can find, at minimum, a razor and a change of shirt. What woke him was the heavy metallic clack of the door, unlocking. He looks up, rubbing his eyes. It's his wife. Marion, oh my God. He leaps up and rushes over to meet her. She stops him a few paces short with a gesture and a cold smile. And that hurts. It hurts more than anything. And that hurts. It hurts more than anything. So it really happened. SCP-4987 has bitten out the part of Marion Wheeler that cared about him. She wasn't absent because of some unrelated K-class outbreak. She just chose to be elsewhere, indifferent. So he doesn't embrace her. He stands at a polite distance. How are you feeling? Did you sleep? I'm fine. I can tell you've had your coffee. Have you eaten? The unit has a rudimentary kitchen area. He goes through and starts exploring the cupboards. There must be something edible around here. Eggs and milk, at least. I'm ashamed to say I more or less fell asleep where I was standing when they put me in here, so I haven't had a chance to scout. Or do you keep the place empty and the food arrives through a slot in the wall? Marion begins... Mr. Wheeler. Adam shoots her a disappointed look. Okay, she says. 
Adam, please come and sit down. You're right. There's nothing in any of those cupboards. He closes the cupboard and sits opposite her at the kitchen table. Scrambled eggs on granary toast, he suggests. With a lot of garlic in the eggs. That's what we both need right now. Particularly you. Because if I don't make something substantial for you, you end up drinking those wretched wallpaper paste milkshakes seven days a week. Or you skip the meal entirely. Adam, we've been married for 17 years, is that correct? Yes. I don't know you. That's fine, Adam says. I doubt that's going to be a serious problem. You've told me many times about your own people who've lost themselves in the work and had to bootstrap their own personalities a second time. You love watching it. It's like watching butterflies emerge from chrysalides. The best of your people can turn that around in 10 weeks. Imagine how fast it's going to be for you. No, Wheeler replies. Her tone is clinical, matter of fact. I'm afraid it's not possible. What's not possible? I can't begin a new relationship right now. Certainly not something as serious as a marriage. You have nominal clearance. You know what we do. I have responsibilities. I do not have time. This isn't new, Adam says, deadpan. It's pre-existing. No, Wheeler explains. That relationship has ended now, and we're somewhere else. Adam stares at her for a long moment, thin-lipped and far from happy. He asks, What do you remember? The question is so open-ended that Wheeler doesn't manage to respond verbally. She spreads her hands slightly, the gesture saying, What? You don't remember me, Adam says. SCP-4987 also clearly ate the part of you which would care if you forgot me and additionally the part of you that cares about brunch. What else have you forgotten would be a stupid question to ask, so instead I'm asking you what's left. I want you to tell me everything you can remember. Everything I can remember? Yes, from 1995 to right now. It's still a farcical question at face value, and Wheeler's first instinct is to dismiss it as such. But she thinks again. She thinks, intending to genuinely try to answer the question, and she finds gaps. There's a dearth of specifics. It's like being asked to say something and immediately forgetting all words. She says, I remember working and driving home and then sleep and then driving back to work. Big hostile buildings, drug regimens, containment procedures, endless piles of opaque numbers, personal fitness drills, running, calculating, never ever stopping calculating. She remembers with unfair clarity a large variety of extremely bad dreams. And other than that, nothing. A huge, deep, ragged-edged black pit. Adam says, you remember nothing good, do you? Nothing good at all. When you come home on the nights you make it home, you're ready to fold up. It's never been an easy job. But these past few years have been the worst they've ever been, because you're coming to the conclusion of something gigantic. You've explained to me how it is that you can never tell me really what it is that you do without the act of you telling me, killing me. And I I couldn't stand that at first, and I still hate your job, and I think it's a monstrous farce, but I trusted you in that, and I stopped asking. But I can tell from the rattle in your hands and the things you don't say and the way you sleep that there is some kind of war going on back there, and you're losing people to it, and you're almost at the end. 
and you're going to win. So I scramble your eggs and I play the violin for you. And between us, we hack out about three-tenths of what I would consider to be normalcy. Not because you can't do this without me. You could take the whole universe by yourself if you really had to. But blazes, with that, you don't have to. It didn't happen instantly, but it happened pretty damn fast. We had music in common at first, Bach and Mendelssohn. We had tobacco in common and a mutual hatred of the X-Files. Then it was coffee and wine. And then after some time, it became hiking and birdwatching and Perseid meteors. We liked Bruce Lee flicks. We watched Law and & Order and Jeopardy. And we read stacks and stacks of books. No, in fairness, it's mainly me for the books. You don't have the long-term time to spare anymore. He pinches the bridge of his nose for a second. Any two people can find that much common ground. Just being in the same place for years doesn't count for anything. What do they have? We communicate, he says, better than anybody I've seen. We can be apart for two months while I'm on tour or you're overseas and snap right back and pick up a conversation from the word we left off. We're connected. We're in the same headspace. You'll see it all. It'll happen again just as fast. You just got to give it a chance. Wheeler is almost there. She sees the shape of what Adam is describing. It's distant and unclear, but if she concentrates, she might be able to bring it into focus. It worries her. For nebulous reasons, she can't completely articulate, but she can almost understand how there could be room for it, how it could lock into her life as it currently exists and still makes sense. But Adam just said something crucial. He said a key word that means the marriage counseling session is over. And this is now a situation. Wheeler can't ignore it. She forces herself to drop the other thread and seize this one. What war? And now, Adam really doesn't know what's happening. Good God, the war, Marion. I don't know how else to describe it. What war? How many people? I don't know, Adam says. They're names, names you stop mentioning. And then you ignore me when I bring them up again. I assume there are reasons. I don't know the specifics. How could I know? Why don't you know? Wheeler races through the reasoning. The existence of a war computes. It confirms long-term existing suspicions. It could have been going on for years without her realizing it. It makes sense to her that she could be fighting it, winning even, and not know. Managing her own memories or losing them in skirmishes. This certainly won't be the first time she's uncovered it. It makes sense that Adam... Naturally gifted with the mental equivalent of a thick layer of blubber, could stand on the edge of the conflict and dimly be able to perceive it. And the division. So understaffed. People are disappearing around her. And what if, she begins, and stops dead in the middle of the thought, as if the thought itself was stolen out of her. And what if we get back together and, she begins again, and this time, hard instinct seizes her around the midsection, and bodily hauls her back from thinking a thought that, it knows, would kill her. She's wily Coyote. She's already run off the edge of a precipice into clear air, and thinking that thought would be like looking down. She feels SCP-4987 moving around her, abstractly bound to her, a winking speck of glitter in her eye. Something's wrong. Adam scratches at his own eye. Do you see that? How can you see that? I have a mild immunity to antimimetic influence, Adam says. 
He knows it's in his file and he knows Wheeler's read the file, but apparently it needs to be said again. I can tell when something's fritzing with my memories. I can resist it up to a point. So Marion, I was hoping to have a relaxed conversation over coffee and get around to this topic organically, but I'm going to have to skip to the end. I have the impression that SCP-4987 is trying to kill me. No, Wheeler says. That's not its behavior model. It doesn't sustain itself that way by eating people. It eats memories, and it's never done this. Not to you, nor me, nor anybody. Not since the very early days. It's tame. It does exactly what I tell it to do, even when I'm waiting, and I'm bored, and I let it eat my short term. It sits and waits to be told to eat. Then what is it doing to us? Adam is getting nervy and won't let go of his eye. He stands up and backs away. I would like it if we could figure this out quickly. We don't have a way to put SCP-4987 down. There's a sound in Wheeler's mind, but not in her ear, like a distant chorus of baying dogs. She stands, too, and moves after Adam into the middle of the containment unit. She says, It's trying to protect you. I, How does wiping your memory of me protect me? I can't explain, Wheeler says, and I can't explain why I can't explain. I don't fully know myself. There's a... A what? You can't be here, she says. You can't be in my life. You have to leave or you're going to die. I'm not leaving you, Adam says. Christ, that's why we did it in the end. Got married, I mean. It was scintillatingly obvious to both of us very early on that we were forever. But I wanted to get it on the public record. I stood up in front of everybody I respect, and I swore to them that I would protect you forever. SCP-4987 is agitated. Wheeler feels it flitting around the room, incoherent, trying to tell her what it needs. She says, with sudden actinic clarity, I must have made an identical promise. Adam doubles over, blinded in both eyes now. Closing his eyes does nothing, covering his eyes does nothing. The gold-white light is strobing for him, moving into violet. He panics. Help! Help me! I can't see! He reaches out unsteadily for Wheeler's hand. She lets him take it and pull her close. The light doesn't fade. He clings to Wheeler for a few moments, and she holds on to him until he realizes that SCP-4987 is completely within her control, and this is all intentional. You're going to do this, Adam says. This is the Foundation mandate. This is what your definition of protect amounts to. You've got no idea what you're about to do to yourself. You don't even know me. I think I know, she replies. You will feel this for the rest of your life. Every day you will wake up with a sick, cold feeling in your stomach where there used to be a real life, and you'll wonder why. I'm going to win this war, Wheeler says to him. I'll beat the universe, and then I will come and find out why. Adam holds on to her for another long, long moment. He can hear the baying too now, and he can even barely perceive what it is far off behind the hill that SCP-4987 is frantic about. That distant dot, that fleeting second-hand glimpse of the shape of it, far off, is enough to terrify him. He has faith. He knows how fast Marion can put the jigsaw pieces back together, work against a universe that makes no sense to her, isolate the truth. He knows she can take the universe. 
but a sharp misgiving jabs him in the stomach, and he can't stop himself saying, And what if you lose? She kisses him. It's a stranger's kiss, and there's nothing there Adam recognizes. He breaks off, unsettled. It's a whisper now. What if you lose? Wheeler exits the containment unit. She slams and deadlocks the door with a single movement. The heavy metallic crack makes the whole building shake. There are people outside, Gauss, Julie Still, and a few others, comparing notes. They look appalled. Fill in his backstory, she tells them. He was never married. Relocate him to where I'll never find him, incinerate all the evidence, then report to me for surgical memory erasure. I'll do myself last. Gauss looks as if he has an objection. She stares him down. My husband's dead, she says. There's another conglomeration of severed fingers in the last room, coating the room's interior like the innards of an exploded elephant. Parts of the sprawl are feeling their way, like mold, into a medical cabinet, and the rest is splayed over a fetal shape on a medical gurney. The mass reacts sharply to the new light as Wheeler opens the door, rearing up and angling parts of itself toward him. Wheeler reels backwards and pulls the door closed just in time. There's a heavy, fleshy thump as the mass hits the door from the far side. The door holds. Wheeler trips on his own foot and slumps against the far wall. The shape on the gurney was a coiled-up human, not a corpse, but a living human with one wide-open eye whose whole body was being slowly consumed and processed into more fingers. They were growing out of his throat. Wheeler didn't see this. He thinks he saw it, but he knows he couldn't have. And that's it. Wheeler casts around the corridor. Every other door he's tried is blocked or locked. The place is below ground, so no windows. No navigable ventilation. There are two more gunshots up at the far end of the corridor, ear-splitting in the enclosed space and echoing for many seconds. Hutchinson rounds the corner at a dead run, gun in hand, and reaches him quickly. Find a way out, she asks, pointlessly. She can read Wheeler's expression. He's found nothing good. This place is infested, Wheeler says. Every room, all the stairwells. This is absurd. At the far end of the corridor, the main mass heaves itself around the corner. From this distance, it looks like an ambulatory eight-ton pile of moldy mashed potato and fat, wiggling maggots. There are toes in there, as well as fingers and small teeth and bits of bone. It has 20 bullet holes in it, and blood is flowing from all of them. But if it has vital organs, they must be elsewhere in the building, because none of the wounds have slowed it down or otherwise altered its slow, methodical homing behavior. It smells powerfully and creatively disgusting, like concentrated medical waste. It lurches forward in intermittent phases, coating the walls and floor with scarlet ooze as it moves. It'll be on them in about half a minute, squashing them against the end of the corridor and then pulling them into the mess to be remade. I think we're done, Wheeler quavers. Thanks for trying. Hutchinson, for her part, just stands there, gun lowered, watching the thing come. It moves slowly, like a steamroller. It fills the corridor, almost to the ceiling. She has two bullets left, and she's considering where to spend them. Shooting the mass itself is like shooting pudding. She'd kill for a grenade. Even a fire axe would be something. She might not be able to stop the thing, 
but she could at least make herself known with a fire axe. She could make it feel some regret. There are worse fates, I guess, Wheeler goes on, finding himself unable to stop talking, than being digitized by that thing, but not all that many. Hutchinson glances in his direction, apparently paying him direct attention for the first time since they met 60 crowded minutes ago, she says, riser covered. What? She pushes Wheeler aside. There's a white painted wall behind him. There's a lock in it and a long vertical seam. She spends a moment choosing the right part of the lock to shoot and then shoots it out. Behind the tall, wide panel, which opens, is a shallow, dusty, metal-edged space like an elevator shaft with no elevator, allowing filthy pipes and cables to pass vertically between floors. She looks up. There's just enough room to admit a person. Can you climb? She asks Wheeler. Without waiting for a response, she sheds her suit jacket, sticks a flashlight between her teeth, and hauls herself up into the darkness. After a brief moment of scuffling, there's another gunshot, the other riser-covered door. No, Wheeler finally manages. No, I can't climb. The mass is almost on him. He's transfixed by its motion, its all-too-familiar grasping behavior. I figured, Hutchinson calls down. A hand descends, a human one, with the conventional number of fingers. It's clear up here. Come on, I'm braced. Mind this lip here, it's metal. Come on. Wheeler keeps his own jacket on and buttoned. It's the only part of the situation over which he still has firm control. He has to jump to catch hold of Hutchinson's hand. And just as he jumps, the main mass lunges for him, crossing the last few meters in a rush and catching hold of him by one foot. He sees himself die. His sweating hand immediately starts to slip out of Hutchinson's. She braces her other arm and hauls him up 15 or 30 centimeters with an angry grunt, then releases his hand for a split second and reaches down like a flash to take firmer hold of his wrist. She keeps pulling. The mass closes around Wheeler's foot like aggressive, proactive quicksand. He yelps and kicks at it with his other foot until it finally pries his shoe loose. The mass retreats for a second, taking a crucial moment to realize that its prize is not living flesh. But by that time... Hutchinson has hauled Wheeler up another half meter, and Wheeler has started pushing himself upwards off the pipework with his feet. The mass lunges again, but falls short, and seems too unintelligent to climb after them. It sloshes around, probing its surroundings, perplexed by the shoe. Hutchinson hauls Wheeler over the lip into the next corridor. He scrapes his ribs badly, and arrives crawling, eyes watering. He doesn't die. He can still see himself dying. He lays on all fours for a significant amount of time, processing what just happened. Fuck. Hutchinson is already standing and apparently not even significantly exerted. We need to get to the roof. I might be able to get a signal out from there. You're at the gym pretty often, Wheeler Pants, sitting back. You train for fresh hell like this? Yeah. That's great, Wheeler says, because I play the violin. It's not quite as physically demanding as careers go, I mean... When you said you were a county health inspector, that was an enormous lie, wasn't it? Hutchinson ignores the question out of habit and waits impassively for the man to cool. This is asinine, Wheeler declares. This is brain damage. His skin crawls and grotesque visions flood through his brain. Eventually, he recovers his breath and gets to his feet. He stands lopsided, so he takes his other shoe off and throws it back down the riser for symmetry. We need to get to the roof, Hutchinson says again. 
Wheeler blinks a long blink, then focuses on something around the corner. Something on the wall that Hutchinson can't see from where she's standing. Yeah, one second. He goes to it. It's a red panel and pulls something down. Here, you're having no luck with the gun. Try this. It's a fire axe. He stepped on a rusty nail backstage after the show and came to the emergency room for a tetanus injection. While waiting, he slowly realized that more than half of the people waiting with him were clutching partially or entirely severed fingers. Bandsaw accidents, hands caught in car doors, hands trapped in door hinges, hands crushed in machinery. Every one of them unrelated. There was an epidemic of physical injury, which should have been impossible. And when he tried to bring it up with the medical staff, they didn't seem to understand what he was saying. And then he saw one of the fingers escape. He followed it as it wriggled away down a long corridor to a far corner of the hospital, to an open door that nobody in the hospital seemed to be able to perceive except for him, and into a different building where there were no people at all, just hundreds and hundreds of wriggling, exploring, slowly reproducing and lengthening fingers. He slammed the door and tried and failed to get someone, anyone, staff or patient, to see what he was seeing. He found a payphone and dialed for emergency services and ordered off the menu, asking for emergency industrial-scale pest control or hazardous containment or psychic support or something. And there was a long pause, and he was connected to what was either a very measured, dispassionate human or an impressively articulated robot operator. It told him to wait by the phone and associate would be with him shortly. Marion Hutchinson arrived in person, slightly less than 15 minutes later. He showed her the door. They went a few paces inside, Hutchinson crouching and aiming some kind of flashlight or scanner at the finger worms. Behind them, something reached out and gently pushed the door closed with a click. They turned and saw what it was and ran. Hutchinson hacks her way through the last of the flesh-clogged stairwell. They're almost at the roof. This part of the distributed infestation doesn't seem to be mobile, although it is freakishly grabby. Wheeler stands three paces back from her, partly to avoid the backswing, but mostly so he doesn't have to watch. It's butchery, and it's grisly, and Hutchinson barely seems perturbed by it. She slices methodically until there are waterfalls of gore coming down the stairs and soaking her shoes and his socks, and she does it with the manner of someone trimming a hedgerow. Wunch. Crunch. Wheeler is shivering and starting to crash. If he doesn't stay still right in the middle of the stairwell, the remaining fingers tug at his hair and sleeves. In another few minutes, it may finally dawn on him that this is really happening. This is crazy. This is nuts, he says to himself, over and over. What was that word you used back there? Hutchinson asks, suddenly. Hmm? Wunch. Don't tune out. When the mass was coming down the hall, did you say digitized? Um, Wheeler seems to change gear and wake up. Yeah, uh, but in the old sense of the word. Digit, meaning finger, so digitized means turned into fingers. I just got it. She's smiling. He can tell from the sound of her words. Clunk. That's great. It is? What kind of violin music? Uh, what kind would you like? Tonight's, last night's, Christ, yesterday's concert was Prokhavayev's Violin Concerto Number 1 and a few other pieces, of course, but that was the main course for me. 
That was where I got my teeth in. Hutchinson stops hacking and turns around. She actually looks him in the eye. That piece is a nightmare. It's a challenge, Wheeler admits, brightly. No, I mean it's chaotic. It's unlistenable. I can play anything you like, Wheeler states. Hutchinson appears to spend a moment considering this possibility. Bach? You can play some Bach? Just get me to a violin. Hutchinson thinks for a moment longer. She smiles and nods and goes back to hacking. And they hit the roof, and Hutchinson's radio finally works, and she calls everything in. She speaks in rapid keywords that Wheeler can't quite follow, although he can pick out his own name and hazmat, and a repeated word that sounds to him like a brand of cassette tape, memetics. It's very nearly dawn. This wing of the hospital is a few stories shorter than its main body, so rows of bright-lit wards look down over the roof, while the roof looks out over two sprawling car parks, and then greenery, and roads, and a faint dull red where the sun is due to come up. Hutchinson quickly ascertains that there's no fire escape from here. The intended fire exit from the roof is the stairwell up which they just came, so they'll have to wait for a helicopter, or, more likely and less romantically, a long ladder. Backup is coming, Hutchinson concludes. They have to come in from the next city over, so it could be a few hours. They'll have decontamination gear, antibiotics, blankets, tedious debriefing forms, you name it, but most importantly, coffee. Wheeler makes an inarticulate sound, the sound of one who could use the coffee, and after that, a drink. God, I have another concert today, he says. He sits on the thick perimeter wall, rubs his eyes, rubs his sore feet, and begins to shut down. You'll be there, Hutchinson says. The nasty part is over. You did well for a civilian. I've seen far worse. Worse than this? Hutchinson says nothing. I'm sorry. Wheeler opens his eyes again. He gestures at the mayhem from which they just escaped, the fire door, and everything it leads to. It's all still down there. You've seen worse than this? Hutchinson, again, says nothing. What is this? What happened here? At first, Hutchinson doesn't answer this either. She walks away, across the roof, and spends an entire minute staring at the forthcoming sun. And then, surprising Wheeler and slightly surprising even herself, she walks back to him and says, SCP-4051, which is the number we just assigned to this infestation, has an intrinsic property that makes it nearly impossible for sapient organisms to perceive it. It's a form of camouflage. It's not invisible, it's a mental blocking effect. Information about it goes nowhere, it gets suppressed. People walk past this building every day of the week. They don't see what's blocking the windows. They walk past that door and don't realize it's standing open. It could have been here for decades. The researchers will get the whole story eventually. Wheeler finds in this explanation something he halfway understands. So, living Fnords? And this actually slows Hutchinson down for a second. She gets that reference. She read those books when she was younger, years ago, before joining the Foundation. But she's never made the connection between Fnords and the work she does. For as long as she's been working there, she hasn't even thought about it. The irony is intense enough to burn. Yeah, she says. Except that you can see them, Wheeler says. I have specialist training, Hutchinson says, declining to mention her drug regimen. And I also can see them. 
You seem to have a mild natural immunity to memory-clouding phenomena, Hutchinson explains. It's rare, but it happens. At a hospital this busy, someone like you is bound to stumble into this place sooner or later. And escape alive, she privately adds. But the point is, this infestation, SCP-4051, is a snowflake. I don't mean that it's special and unique. I mean, it's part of a blizzard. I work for an independent scientific research institution with a specialist focus on the containment of hazardous anomalous phenomena. We have an international mandate and formidable resources and unimaginable responsibilities. We, we watch the blizzard and we guard the little fire. We're called the Foundation. Wheeler's full attention is on her now. He feels tense and exposed here, vulnerable to extraordinary natural forces from which, by rights, he should be fleeing. But he's also fascinated. Hutchinson has a faintly ethereal attitude to her. It's as if she's not standing on the same planet as everybody else. So you're not FBI, he says. Either, I mean. That was my other guess. Hutchinson wrinkles her nose. I hate that show. I don't believe I mentioned the show, Wheeler says, mischievously. They do everything wrong, Hutchinson says. A nerve has been touched. She shuffles irately. They don't have enough people. They don't trust each other. They don't spend nearly enough time on paperwork. Paperwork saves lives. But most of all, I hate the will they or won't they. For what, five years? It's forced. It's farcical. She glares at Wheeler. It doesn't take that long to know. You will or you won't. And then you do. Wheeler reads her expression carefully. You do? Yeah, Hutchinson says, smiling again. Yeah, I think you do. A distant, rapid thudding noise slowly becomes apparent. Hutchinson sees the source of the sound first and points. Backup's here. And it looks like we raided a helicopter after all. Foundation agent George Barson is monolithic. Nearly two meters tall and rectangular-shouldered, like a Bruce Timm cartoon. He's bald, bearded, and immaculately presented. His suit is tailored. There are few which will fit him off the rack. He arrives at the Green Place first thing after dawn, 6 o'clock. The address is isolated, an acre or two of ill-maintained scrubland off a spur of a spur of the main highway north out of Ojai. Barson is part of the Foundation's Anomalous Religious Expressions Division. They do cults. Green is not the name of the cult that Barton is here to confront, but a code name. Barson doesn't know the real name. At the briefing last night, it was explained that there are legitimate security reasons to use code names instead of true names here, but those reasons were not explained. Barson, no fool, took this to mean that there is some form of cognitohazard surrounding the true names, or a memory-clouding phenomenon that makes them impossible to record, or, and he's dealt with Foundation research staff for far too many years to not consider this, somebody just straight up forgot to record the real names is trying to cover for themselves. If there's an SCP number, he hasn't been told it. The house is an ugly white sprawl, one-story, wood construction, no two windows alike in design, decaying. There are piles of junk, lumber, rusted vehicle components, drums of filthy green water. Willow and sycamore trees are encroaching from two and a half sides, drizzling leaves, drizzling leaves and seeds, and miscellaneous biological gunk all over the roof, clogging the gutters. 
Through the windows, only closed curtains and blinds are visible. The front door is standing ajar. Larson proceeds inside, cautiously. The entrance opens almost directly onto a large lounge-slash-diner-slash-kitchen area. The room is darkened, light mostly spilling in from the entrance door. Larson leaves it open and feeling its way around the edges of the window coverings. The place is dirty and smells of mold. The still air is like an oven, and it's extremely quiet except for the faint, animated sound of someone talking, away down the hall, words not entirely clear. Wasps, and yeah, it's going to be sharp inside. When you're made to move, that's the log you'll bleed from. Barson goes down the hall, passing a wall decoration that was once a mirror, but has been completely painted over in black. After a brief search, during which he ascertains that the rest of the house is empty, he comes to the final room. This door is closed, but the focused rambling is coming from inside. At home, it's super easy. I'm going to give you something. An easy two-part project for you to take away, and don't forget, I'll... uh, Below. Part 1. Find someone weaker than you. Barson knocks loudly twice. The patter stops. Nothing else is heard. Barson opens the door. The room is dark, its windows blocked with a thick curtain. There's a computer desk in the corner opposite the door, about as cluttered as a desk can realistically get, strewn with partially disassembled hardware, USB keys, chocolate wrappers, scraps of paper, ballpoint pens. There's a gaming mouse, unable to move for junk. There's a good quality video camera set up, a monitor, video feeds on the monitor, dust. There's a cheap skeletal swivel chair in front of the monitor, and a young man of about 20 slouched uncomfortably in the chair. He is skinny, with discolored pale skin that Barson thinks could be caused by malnutrition. He has what was at one point a stylish, fashionable haircut, but is now in some disrepair and when he turns around, Barson sees that he has dark rings around his eyes. It looks as if he hasn't slept in a year. He reeks. The room is filled with that odor, almost thick enough to see. In the same way that the anomalous viral-slash-religious phenomenon, the cult, gathering around and above this young man like an anvil cloud, is named Green, he himself is named Red. "'Good morning,' Barson says. "'We saw your streams.' The youth pulls his headphones down. The fuck are you? My name's George Barson. I'm part of an organization that, uh... Red launches out of his chair like a rabid greyhound from a cage. He comes fist first, losing the headphones. Barson shifts his weight slightly to his left, leaning away from the punch. He catches Red's arm and pulls it forward violently, deflecting the attack's momentum and bringing the youth teeth first into the doorframe. Red stumbles back crouching. He finds his footing swiftly. Froth is developing at the corners of his mouth, mixing with blood. Scrabbling around the junk on the floor, he puts a hand on a soldering iron. As Red comes forward again, Barson wastes a critical split second trying to trace the iron's cable to figure out whether it's plugged in and hot or not. It's not, but that's enough distraction that Red gets right up there, driving the iron up into Barson's gut with both hands. There's an electronic screech and a spark of orange light. The iron holes Barson's shirt but skitters off his abdomen, opening a long tear. There's bare skin underneath. His shield is invisible, partly mythical, and protects his seemingly exposed head just as well as the rest of him. 
Larson takes Red in a headlock. Some haphazard kicking ensues, less well choreographed. Red has a demon's energy behind him, but Barson has, to be blunt, arrived prepared. In a few more moves, Red is disarmed, stunned, flat on his back, and good for nothing. Barson takes stock. The number of genuine fight-for-your-life fights he's been in is still in single digits. This one ranks about in the middle. Fifteen seconds of activity, both of them made mistakes. A learning experience. Then I'll dispense with the introductions, he says to Red. The live-streaming vector was novel. We hadn't seen that before. Very effective compared to the generic self-help book and walled compound model. You get one point for originality out of ten, but we predicted it decades back and we had the containment procedures ready to go. We have people at the streaming services. As I speak, we're locking you out of your account. We're using your own channels to distribute inoculation codes. Barson tries to tidy his shirt up. It's not going to work. Never mind. But you're the source, he says. A simple inoculation code would glance off. Physical intervention is required. He reaches inside his jacket, where he has a perfectly serviceable gun that he elected to leave where it is for this confrontation, and produces a device not unlike an ophthalmologist's scope. He kneels, lifts Red's right eyelid, and aims the scope at it, projecting a brilliant white spot of light that bathes the entire eye and causes it to lock open. Almost all of Red's musculature locks up as well, effectively pinning him to the floor. His teeth clench. Barson says to Red, This man is innocent. Nobody can deserve what you've done to him. Release him and leave this reality forever. Through gritted teeth, Red says, Who the fuck are you? All right. Barson pushes another button, changing the projected light pattern from a pure white disc into a complex spiral star design in red and blue. There's a crack like ribs being forced apart, and the youth screams. It doesn't sound like red. It's a full-body scream, anguished and hopeless and as loud as he's physically able to make it. It comes up from his belly and goes on, flat out, until he runs out of breath and gasps and does it again, arching his back and clawing at the floor. After the second full breath, he cools down to a sobbing wail. Jesus Christ, don't send me back, please. I won't, it's okay. Don't send me back, I can't see, who's there? It's okay, you'll get your sight back. My name's George, what's yours? There's a pit, the youth says, choking. And it always gets worse, it doesn't stop, there's no bottom. He babbles incoherently for a moment, and then trails off. His eyes dance blindly. You're in a really bad place right now, Barson says. The youth vehemently agrees. Something has gone wrong, Barson explains, and that thing, that horrific thing that went wrong, has found you and abducted you and replaced you. It's out here now using your skin as a finger puppet, walking you around and making you talk, replicating. That nightmare you're having is being had by a hundred thousand people right now. That's the bad news. The good news is that we caught you, and I can still see you in there, and there's a good chance we can get you out. A good chance? The youth breathes twice. If you can't, he begins urgently. Focus on the red and blue spiral, Barson says. He still has the scope pointed into the youth's eye. What? I can't see anything. That's because you're not directly connected to this optic nerve anymore. But your mind is locked inside something that is. You can't see the spiral, but somehow you know what it looks like. You can sense its shape, like a pattern of heat on the back of your hand. 
Larson's voice is becoming slower, taking on a hypnotic rhythm. The spiral idea is going in. It's spreading and flourishing, occupying more space. The more you think about the spiral, the more you realize you can't think about anything but the spiral. The youth seems to have nothing to say to this. His breathing stabilizes. Your thoughts are slowed, Barson continues. The spirals fill you up recursively like ice crystals until you can't move. Your brain knows it's being poisoned. Even though you're blind, you feel a reflexive need to look away or block out what you're seeing. A long enough exposure is fatal. There's a long, heavy pause during which Barson does nothing but shine poisonous light into the young man's eye while studying that brightly illuminated eye himself, tracking the progress of the ocular response, waiting for a particular tell. It's not a clear-cut thing. There's a small amount of guesswork. He waits until he's sure. Finally, he releases the button on the scope, shutting it off. The youth is now completely inert. Barson stands up, knees creaking. He relaxes, sighs. His shoulders untense a little. He puts the scope away. You can think of this as mimetic chemotherapy, he says. He says it to himself, mostly, to fill dead air. The young man can only hear pink fuzz now. The spiral symbol is an elementary cognitive poison. A long exposure is fatal, but a just barely non-fatal exposure is recoverable. You will recover from this poison, and Red cannot. You will survive, and Red will die. Because you, my man, are an intelligent, creative human being, and Red is... He reflects on his briefing and what he knows of the green phenomenon and the hundred thousand people suffering and raving inside it right now. They are in all parts of the globe. He's seen some photographs of what takes place in homes occupied by Red's appalling messages. He's heard a strictly limited amount of highly redacted audio. Dispassionate people make better field decisions. That's the rule he was always taught. But remaining dispassionate is harder on some days than others. A piece of shit. Barson potters around the room for a little while, taking a closer look at some of the computer hardware. Nothing notable there, although he finds a stand for the soldering iron. There's also a narrow camp bed in the room, with a bedraggled sleeping bag. He clears the sleeping bag away and loads the youth onto the bed in a recovery position. He pulls the curtain open. It's an obnoxiously sunny day, and the sun is aimed right in through that window. Finally, Barson picks up the swivel chair and settles into it on the far side of the room, where he can keep an eye on his patient. He pulls a foundation-issued phone from his pocket, along with a horrendously tangled pair of cheap earbuds, which he begins to untangle. He relaxes into his monologue. It's not as if anybody's listening. Fact is, I didn't need to come here. There's more than one way to physically intervene when something like green comes around. You know what the original plan was when we found out about you? Orbital laser cannon to the top of the head. We can do that, my man, from time to time. Your house would be a circle of scorched timber with you a burnt marshmallow at the middle of it. That's our latest methodology for dealing with virulent, single-culpability mimetic anomalies. We do it at arm's length, at the longest possible distance, unblinkingly and unfeelingly, and to hell with the details. It's brutal, impersonal, very expensive in orbital laser maintenance. We say to ourselves that it's effective. Maybe it is. I'm not at that level. I don't get to see the statistics. But what I do know is that we can always do better. And I looked at the file and I looked at you. And I took a long shot. 
Honestly, I'm a very small guy in the grand scheme, but I stood up in a pretty intense meeting with people who I don't really have the authority to say anything to, and I said to them, this is a paraphrase, there's a completely innocent kid at the center of this. He doesn't deserve this. At minimum, we've got to make the gesture. A shadow passes across the room. Barson looks around briefly, but whatever it is, is gone. He thinks nothing of it. And then I also said, if it works, it'll save us a boatload of money. I think that part was the part that got their attention. But I got the thumbs up, so here I am, trying to save your life the hard way instead of just atomizing it. It'll probably take all day, six, ten hours. Don't worry, I have podcasts. He finishes untangling the earbuds and screws the first of them into his left ear. Your people must really hate you, Red says. Shit. Barson draws. Late. Obviously, nobody should be able to talk right now, but the real reason he draws late is that the comet lands. It should just pass by him, but there's a sharp, spiteful element of truth to it. Truthfully, nobody was a fan of the idea. Barson's been saying for a long time, with gradually increasing volume, to gradually increasingly senior Foundation overseers, that a chat beats a fight. He's been ignored over and over. Yesterday, when they finally said that he could try it, it was grudgingly. And so a momentary flicker of foul suspicion appears. Did they know? Did they really just kill him? They didn't, he knows. And of course they didn't. As he fumbles the gun out, Red is already sat up, grinning like a ventriloquist's puppet, and turned his head to look right at Barson. They make eye contact, and this time, Red's eyes are open all the way allowing Barson to see straight through to what's on the other side. Green comprehension leaps out of the pit at Barson and grounds itself in the back of his skull. He recoils instinctively, breaking the connection and covering his eyes. He stumbles, falling backwards out of the chair and into the corner of the room. His orange crystalline shield fluctuates, panicking in its own way because of what just passed through it. Intermittently, it turns impermeable, cutting off Barson's frantic breathing then it snaps off and dies. Barson doesn't have the training to fully comprehend the idea complex he was just exposed to. He has a basic level of practical memetics training. He can administer the spiral treatment and a few others and protect himself from certain attacks that would knock a generic human over like a domino. But he's an entry-level practitioner, not a specialist, not a scientist. The sheer scope of green is beyond his ability to comprehend. He feels like one of the men Lewis Slotten irradiated, a demon core, criticality witness. He knows he's dead. The only question is how long it's going to take. Red swings his legs off the bed and stands, keeping his grin fixed on Barson. A spinning red and blue light. How backward are you? He seems to grow larger and to sink backwards into space, a hole where a human should be. Barson finds he can't make himself move out of the corner. It's like he's pinned. There's a creeping, staticky numbness in his hands. He understands his error now. He might as well have tried to poison the ocean. He sees the whole thing. Red's grotesque vision for the world, and his slash its immense vicious promise. The rot is everywhere. Those hundred thousand infected are a foretaste. The spores are flourishing, secretly, in every aspect of reality, in people's lungs, in their minds, their words, in the soil, in the sky. Maggots and cancers and star signals. How can anyone think like that? 
How can anyone want that? You, Barson means it in the singular. There's no distinction between Red and whoever that original human was. There's no one to rescue. It was a damn ruse. It was voluntary. You made this happen, he manages. It didn't abduct you. You invited it. Hacked your own soul in half and offered the pieces up for no reason at all? You've latched yourself onto the front of something unimaginable. You can't comprehend how badly this is going to end. You've murdered yourself. Red advances on him. Gun. Barson's mind is disintegrating, but it gets that one word out. Gun. It's on the floor between them, gleaming in the shaft of orange light pouring in from the window. Barson fights himself and wins and lunges for it, only then finding that the creeping numbness in his extremities isn't just affecting his hands, it's affecting his own ability to perceive them. He doesn't know that it's a minor anti-mimetic clouding effect. All he knows is that there's a stump at the end of his arm. Both arms. The gun is inoperable. All he can do is push it around the floor. He shouts, miserably and helplessly. Red laughs and doesn't even bother to kick it away. The foundation will stop you, Barson manages, like a mantra. Red cocks his head as if he knows the word foundation from somewhere. Are all of them as weak as you? He concentrates. Comprehension goes both ways. Barson dimly understands what red represents, which means red, in turn, dimly understands what Barson represents. Red perceives the power structures that dispatch Barson into this hated burrow. Red perceives the shadows of the people at the streaming services and the mobile task force Barson doesn't know about, skulking out at the property's perimeter, waiting for a go order that'll never come. Red perceives the four or five brutal, impersonal suits sitting at the top of the operation, webbing it together. One of them is toying, absently, with their laser strike key stick, twirling it around the back of their thumb over and over, dropping it. That's as far through headspace as Red can search, because that's the limit of the people who know about him. It. Red. That's the hit list. A shadow blots the sun out again, the same one as before, for longer this time. Red looks out through the window, giving it a curt nod, and it departs. Barson slumps to one side, dead up to the shoulders now. Conscious that any of these words could be his last, he says, You think you're in control, but it's going to kill you too. We can get you out. You can help us contain it. Red crouches, still grinning. Look at me. Look. Barson looks. He doesn't have a choice. It hurts. Red makes sure he's being heard, loudly and clearly. No. Zayn. Three, four, six. Semach, Shin. Barson whispers. Red blinks. What? Something bleeps. I star, Barson says. I star. Shit. Red looks around, suddenly, genuinely alarmed. The phone. He lost track of Barson's phone. He finds it beneath the bed. He snatches it up. There's a voice authentication interface, and authentication is nearly complete. Stop. Cancel. Undo. Nothing happens. Wrong voice. He drops the phone, scrambles for the gun. Zelohi, a Nora. Fire, Barson says. Red puts a bullet through the phone, and a second through Barson's skull. He looks up at the ceiling, waiting, still alarmed, 
and he waits. But nothing else happens. Miss Wheeler, Miss Wheeler. Marion Wheeler has just finished a scheduled inspection of SCP-8473 and is about to go for a cigarette. Someone is running up to meet her outside SCP-8473's containment unit. Wheeler recognizes her as Dr. Eli Moreno, a trainee field researcher who joined the Antimimetics Division only six months ago. Dr. Moreno, can I help you with something? Um, Moreno interlocks her fingers nervously. She's a full head taller than Wheeler and half her age, with scraggly hair and exceedingly thick glasses. She lacks experience, but she is very smart, and she is learning very fast. In another year, she'll be among the best people the division has or has ever had, and Wheeler is looking forward to that. Wheeler loves nothing more than competent people. Still, as the pause lengthens, that day of competence seems to be in the future. Dr. Moreno, I normally expect my people to get to the point a little quicker than this. There's a stone in the forest behind the site, Moreno blurts. It's monumental. It's like a skyscraper. It blots out the sun. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. But I've never seen it before. I don't understand how it's possible that I never saw it. It casts a shadow across the whole site. I mean, was it always there? Yes. Is this because... You took your first routine dose of ops-grade Nestics this morning, yes. Moreno seems alarmed. That's how it works? Something that big can just be right there and we don't see it? Yeah. Wheeler checks her watch and mentally moves some scheduled commitments around. Extend this smoke break to the rest of the afternoon. Leave the scheduled inspection of SCP-3125 where it is. Review promotion cases after the gym instead of before. Evening meal at this rate. Never. Moreno, suffocating under the weight of follow-up questions, finally asks, What is it? Wheeler gestures to her left, down the corridor, indicating that she's about to walk and that Moreno should follow her. I'll show you. In the database, it's SCP-9429. Moreno hasn't read the entry. She doesn't have access. The stone is a single unbroken 91 by 91 by 147 meter vertical cuboid of ancient weathered dark basalt. It sits at a very slight angle, leaning fractionally to the north. Its regular angles clearly mark it as a carved object, a human-made artifact. It rises out of the forest to the east of Site 41 and dominates, not to say obliterates, the views in that direction from the windows of the site's main block. It is, by volume, massively bigger than the site itself, even including its underground extents. It looms. It is absolutely unmissable. The idea that anyone could fail to notice it for any period of time is, Wheeler has to admit, more than a little unnerving. Wheeler leads Moreno of the short forest track to the stone's perimeter, and then right, following its perimeter in its shadow. It's a wet day and rain is dripping from the very top edge of the cube, as well as from the conifers that grow right beside it. The rain makes a constant white hiss, deadening other sounds. There's a weak antimimetic clouding effect surrounding it, Wheeler explains, as she picks her way along the track ahead of Moreno. To most people, it's effectively invisible. You've been up to the top of some of these other hills, I'm sure. You should have seen it clearly from up there as well, but you looked straight past it. 
that's normal. There's a related effect that removes people's memories after they visited the stone. That effect is much stronger. It'll cut right through your nestic drug regimen and mine. So we'll forget all about this, Moreno asks. Wheeler holds up a battered little notebook and a cheap blue ballpoint. Moreno understands she is carrying a notebook and pen as well. Information suppression is a complicated spectrum. Sometimes, a written note is the only thing that'll make it out of a zone that suppresses memories, electronic data, radio signals, and even audible sound. Alongside the mandatory Foundation-issue brick phone, many anti-memetics division operatives habitually carry some combination of an instant camera, a mechanical tape-driven dictaphone, a notebook, a walkie-talkie. Not that Moreno was expecting to need anything today. Of course, Wheeler continues, one side effect of the clouding is that I don't exactly remember the way. I guess we could set up signposts, but somehow it never gets done. Not because of anti-memetic effects, you understand. Just plain laziness. Ah, this looks like the way up. They come to a passage in the side of the stone. In fact, it's not a passage, but a tremendously deep groove cut all the way from the top of the cube to its base. A slot with a thin line of overcast sky visible overhead and steps leading up. Wheeler begins to climb and Moreno follows. They climb in silence for some minutes. Moreno stops a few times to write down a note or two, hunching over to shield her notebook from the drizzle. Then she hurries to catch up with Wheeler, who maintains a steady, indifferent pace. Some time after Moreno has lost count of the steps, the stepped groove makes a 90-degree turn to the left and continues to ascend. Wheeler stops here, above Moreno, and turns to Quizzer. What do you have so far? What is this place? Moreno asks. You tell me. Um. Moreno hesitates for a moment, uncertain where this is going. She checks her notes. Um, well, geologically speaking, this stone is an alien. At first I thought there'd been a mountain on this spot that was excavated into this shape by human hands, but the rock itself is wrong. It's different from the mountains and hills near here. You'd have to travel at least 500 kilometers to find basalt like this, which means it must have been excavated elsewhere, maybe carved there, and moved here. Wheeler says nothing, but her demeanor seems to indicate that Moreno is on the right track. Which isn't possible, Moreno continues. This is a single stone. Judging from its dimensions and density, it must mass north of 3 million tons. That's now, after carving... And that can't be done. Human civilization cannot move objects of this size, not in a single piece. The technology doesn't exist. Correct. So how did it get here? Good question. Moreno waits. She doesn't have the answer to the question, so she waits for Wheeler to supply it. But Wheeler does not. What else? It's been engraved. Moreno says, indicating the walls of the step passage, using tools, and I notice the exterior walls are the same. There's a lot of weathering, but here and there between the biological crud, there's this very clear, regular pattern. Right here, see? Tiny vertical rectangles like a block cursor on an old computer terminal. Or a tombstone in typography, Wheeler suggests. Moreno blinks. Yes, it's a uniform pattern. Very detailed work that would require quite good tools, even by modern standards. I think this pattern is supposed to cover the entire exterior of the stone. And if that's the case, the blocks are so minuscule and the stone is so large, 
that there must have originally been hundreds of millions of them. Correct, Wheeler says again. Anything else? Moreno thinks for a minute. She stares up into the rain, reflecting on the atmosphere that the stone, or sculpture, as she supposes it would be better described, projects. Loneliness. Quiet. Desolation. Awe. Intimidation. And some fear. Although, with that intimidating, fearful atmosphere, there's no sensation of danger, no threat. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture, she says aloud. Wheeler hears this, but asks no follow-up question. Apparently satisfied, she turns and continues climbing the steps, and Moreno follows. The passage makes several more turns, carving out an erratic, squared squiggle. Moreno takes no further notes. Her knees are about ready to explode by the time they reach the top. They emerge, blinking at the light, on a wet, windswept, slightly slanted plateau. There are more of the tiny tombstone indentations underfoot. The edges of the cube are some distance away, but they're not marked. The dark gray surface just ends at a straight line not far out, and the horizon itself is below it, not visible. This gives Moreno some vertigo, particularly since the surface tilts toward one corner, and the engraved basalt underfoot is slick, wet, and getting wetter. There's a small cluster of foundation scientific equipment up here, chunky, weatherproof units stacked up under a canopy. There's a table with a rugged, beaten-up computer terminal switched off. Further away is a diesel generator. Wheeler ignores the equipment and paces away in a different direction, facing away from Moreno and out at the sky, playing with her cigarette lighter, although not actually lighting anything. The lighter is actually a tiny propane burner intended for lighting stoves, given to her by her mother before she died. Wheeler no longer remembers this. Moreno waits for a while, arms folded for warmth, gradually getting wetter. She doesn't seek cover under the canopy because Wheeler hasn't. She senses that something is about to happen. Wheeler is normally quite poised and difficult to read, but she looks apprehensive, upset even. Focused intently on the lighter flame, Wheeler seems to be unable to look her in the eye, as if she doesn't want to push through with the next part of whatever this is actually supposed to be. Orientation? Initiation? Hazing? What was that about getting to the point? It's a memorial, Moreno says. Huh. Wheeler snaps the lighter shut and pockets it, moderately impressed. Only moderately, though. That's right. Of course, I practically told you that when I mentioned tombstones. How many anti-memetics wars have there been? That gets her. Damn, so much for slow-burning theatrics. Someone told you? You read the entry? Moreno looks at her shoes. Um, no, really, I've never seen this place before. I was just guessing. You look embarrassed, Wheeler says. You're embarrassed that you hit the right answer 30 minutes before I was expecting you to. You think you've shown me up, right? Eli, look at me. She looks. Keep operating at that level. Don't slow up for my benefit or anyone's. It's important. Will you tell me why we're here? Moreno asks, for what she hopes will be the final time. And in another part of her mind, a fatal chain of calculations starts. The problem, Wheeler says is that every single person in the world with reliable access to high-grade nestic medication works for me, here. And the division is pitifully understaffed. 
There are 40 of us, including you and me, and 40 pairs of eyes is not enough. We cannot look at enough of the world at once. There is an appallingly large percentage of the world that no human has ever properly looked at. This is unbearably limiting to all forms of antimimetic research, antimimetic biology, antimimetic paleontology, antimimetic cosmology, antimimetic archaeology. These disciplines, all of them, barely exist. They are nowhere. Nevertheless, we've seen this culture's cities. One or two still exist. Pure dumb luck is how we found them. A division researcher takes a vacation, drives across Nevada, while still on the dose, sees something on the horizon, that sort of thing. The cities are physically ruined, and there are heavy antimimetic effects shrouding them that make them nearly impossible to study even for us. Large, simple things like this stone survive better, but even so. We think the stone was one of the last things they built before they died out. They were human. They were probably significantly more technologically advanced than we are. They existed tens of thousands of years ago, perhaps hundreds of thousands, we can't know for sure. It's difficult to determine what really happened to them because their entire cultural memeplex was lethally irradiated. Their core cultural concepts, the things they created and stood for, and valued highly, can never be known or propagated again. We think an idea stole into their culture that they didn't have adaptations to defend against. A complex of ideas, a memeplectic Keter class end of the world scenario. Wheeler pauses, letting the rain patter for a significant moment. And we just forgot, Moreno asks, the rest of us who survived the war and became modern humanity, you and me and everybody, we what, looked away and walked away and moved on? Yes. Moreno staggers, vertigo swelling up and briefly getting the better of her. Hundreds of millions of people died and we just forgot. Is that what you wanted to show me? You want me to write that down? Yes, Wheeler says. Yes. Write this down. It's the first thing you're learning today. Humans can forget anything. It's okay to forget some things because we're mortal and finite. But some things we have to remember. It's important that we remember. Write to yourself something that'll make you remember. Moreno nods. It's raining too heavily, so she retreats under the canopy and uses the table. Even so, a few raindrops spatter her notes. She writes intently and rapidly for some time. What she writes is rushed and unrefined, with large parts crossed out. She wonders how she'll react when she reads it for the first time. After a while, Wheeler joins her under the canopy. Moreno, staring at her notes, asks Wheeler, as if she doesn't already know the answer. And the second thing? Wheeler says, It is possible that their culture had an equivalent to the foundation. It may even have had an antimimetics division. If they did, their foundation and their antimimetics division failed them. It's a big reality. It's a big foundation. There's a lot of Keters and a lot of Keter class scenarios. So maybe the end of the world will be some other division's problem. And yes, a big part of the job we hired you for is basic research, lab work, as safe as it gets. And yes, it's been thousands of years, and it may be thousands of years more. But maybe it won't. And maybe it will be our problem. To answer your original question, there has been one antimimetics war that we know, potentially others that we don't know of. And there is, undoubtedly, one to come. Moreno says nothing. 
She looks dismayed, broken. She's right to be, and Wheeler is familiar with the reaction. This is, indeed, part of every new antimimetics division operative's orientation. The magnitude of responsibility can be hard to handle. It should be. Welcome to the antimimetics division, Wheeler says. This is your first day. Moreno writes for some time longer. Wheeler waits, silently. The rain doesn't let up. But what was it, Moreno asks. What was the idea? SCP-9429-A, Wheeler says. We isolated the memeplex itself in the 70s. We have it on a slab in a Vegas room, basement level 2. It's mostly harmless now. It's so culturally alien to modern humans as to be nearly incoherent. Think Egyptian hieroglyphs. I'll show you another day. I can read Egyptian hieroglyphs, Moreno says. Are you saying it couldn't come back? In that form, it's highly unlikely. Moreno points at something, far away in the sky. Wheeler looks. There's nothing out there, just overcast sky and rain. What do you see? Under heavy nestic doses, some people say they see ghosts here. We even have some supposed interview logs. Personally, I think the veracity is dubious. Um, it doesn't look like a ghost. It looks like a... an anorexic kaiju. A monster. A pillar made of spiders. It's... taller than this stone. At least twice as tall. It's coming here. Is this normal? No. Wheeler is already racing through the checklist. What is it? I don't know. This isn't part of the hazing? No, I will never lie to you, Eli. I swear. An antimimetically cloaked entity that looks as monstrous as Moreno is describing has an approximately 0% chance of being benign. They need support. Wheeler finds that her phone has no signal. Checking Moreno's is pointless. She already knows. The only way to get a message out of here is with a written note. A paper airplane thrown off the top into the woods? It's bending down. I think it's looking at me, Moreno says, watching a space in the air descend. There isn't even a hole in the rain that Wheeler can perceive. Its head is gigantic. It has to be ten meters wide. It has graspers and arthropod legs all over it. Dozens of eyes. Some of them are blinded. There's someone riding it. What? Describe the rider. Caucasian male, twenties, skinny. Jeans, trainers, dirty brown hair, needs a haircut. He's been shot. He's bleeding out all over, but he doesn't seem to notice. In the liver, and again in the throat, just above the clavicle. He's smiling. He, he says, no, that never happened. Wheeler spends a split second wondering whether the gunshot wounds are intentionally creepy detailing or whether the man is genuinely using some kind of advanced antimimetic power to ignore a mortal wound, and, if the latter, how, and how he originally sustained it. But more urgent questions are afoot. He sees you? Yes. Does he see me, hear me? Moreno is transfixed and is starting to look genuinely frightened. He wants to know who I'm talking to. Don't tell him. He doesn't get information about us, understand? Wheeler pulls her walkie-talkie from her waist, sets it to broadcast an emergency beacon, turns and hurls it over arm as far as she possibly can in the direction of the Site-41 main building. 
With luck, it'll land intact in the forest, outside the suppression zone cast by SCP-9429, summoning a mobile task force. Ask who he is. Moreno is standing very still, with her arms clamped rigidly at her side. Who are you? He says... He says he's nearly finished. He says he's going to kill me. Like hell, Eli, listen to me. We're running for it, back down the steps. If we can get to the perimeter of the stone, it'll flush our memories. I can't move. Wheeler hauls on one of Moreno's arms. She can't be moved. Put one foot in front of the other. It's got a hold of me. Moreno is goggle-eyed and starting to hyperventilate. Wheeler disengages and surveys the situation. She can't see or touch any grasping spider legs or the monumental face that Moreno can't look away from or the writer, but she believes Moreno that they're there, real, for some value of real. She clasps one hand to her side, but of course she isn't carrying her sidearm because this is a safe SCP on a safe site and why would she be? Not that it even makes a difference when this mythical writer is able to laugh off gunshot wounds. There aren't enough options in front of her. She very badly wants to swear and bites down hard on her tongue. Moreno screams. Eli, Wheeler shouts. Don't look at it. Look at me. I can't. You're stronger than this. I'm not, Moreno cries. You're the best we have, Wheeler says. I'm not making that up. You're seeing this thing when nobody else could. That makes you smarter and stronger. You can fight it. Invasion drill. It hates us so much, Moreno says. I can't think through it. I can't see. Please, please don't. Wheeler knocks her out. She circles behind Moreno, plants one hand on her shoulder for stability, and punches her behind the ear. Moreno sags in place, then falls forward to her knees. Wheeler is just about able to catch her before her skull connects with the ground. But she didn't hit her hard enough. Moreno's unconscious only for a second. She struggles as she comes back. It's like she's waking from a nightmare into another nightmare. She clutches at Wheeler's hand. She can't scream. Her heart stops. Wheeler rolls her over and administers CPR, but without equipment, there's very little chance of her restarting Moreno's heart. Nobody's coming. She didn't throw the walkie-talkie far enough. It's almost 15 minutes before she gives up. And then, Wheeler is collapsed against the wall of the passage, on the next to the last step, about to leave SCP-9429's field of influence, trying to figure out what in the fuck she can possibly write to herself. What the hell was that thing? All Moreno did was think of it and it killed her. She was as good as any of us. She was as capable as she was ever going to be, and she wasn't good enough. How do you fight an antimimetic monster that only eats the best antimimeticists. You, you could try to build some kind of counter meme, but you'd need to be shielded while you worked on it. You'd need a hermetically sealed self-sustaining lab as big as an arcology, like the ones Bart Hughes used to build, like the one under Site 41. God, how long have we been fighting this thing? There's a rustling behind her. She turns to look. Far away, up the steps, there he is. The writer Moreno described. A scrawny young man with a hostile frown and, yes, two steadily oozing gunshot wounds. His shoes are soaked in blood. He calls out, 
Marion Wheeler, I owe you for the lake. Wheeler stands up. She doesn't know what lake he's talking about, but she says nothing. The rider gestures. Blue and brown and black spiders of all sizes cascade around the corner, flooding the passageway up to his knees, pouring over his shoulders, tumbling down towards Wheeler. They make a strange organic rustling as they pour, like wet leaves. There must be millions of them. The spiders would probably be much more effective if she was at all afraid of them. It's too bad. She's just learned a great deal about this entity, that they have history together, and that it personally dislikes her, and that it apparently has a humanoid mouthpiece and a lousy imagination. But she has only a second before the cascade of arachnids overcomes her, and that's not enough time to even write a single word. Moreno's death, then, was for nothing. She steps backwards over the threshold. The rain is finally easing off. Wheeler lights a cigarette and heads back to the main building. It's almost time for her scheduled inspection of SCP-3125. If Adam Wheeler gave it some thought, or if someone were to prompt him with the right questions, he could put words around the fact that his existence doesn't bring him any satisfaction. He would discover, on introspection, that he's nowhere close, actually, to happy, and that there is something vast and significant missing from his life. But he doesn't give it any thought. There's a void between him and those questions. Objectively, academically, his life is great. As a professional violinist, he does what he loves the most for a living. He has talent, recognition, challenge, variety, applause, a moderate wealth. What is there to question? Why shouldn't he love it? During slower moments, there's a gray worry in the back of his mind. It's there in the minutes right after he wakes up in the morning, before he makes it to the shower. It's there in the dead times backstage, when he can't use his phone and there's nothing to do but wait to go on. It perturbs him from time to time, that he seems to exist in a kind of long shadow, cast by a vast class of thoughts that he's unable to think. But the rest of the time, on a day-to-day -day basis, his calendar is as busy as he and his manager can make it. He performs, solo and in orchestras. He records, he composes, and teaches. Every week is a different challenge. He keeps busy, and the feeling goes away if he's busy. On the morning of the day that Va arrives, while he's brushing his teeth, a tiny black slug falls out of the corner of his eye into the hotel sink. <laughs> he scratches that eye while drooling foam from his toothbrush. He takes a closer look at himself in the mirror. Yep, there's another, fatter one growing in there, its tail protruding from his tear duct. I can do without this, he mutters to himself. He spits, rinses, then takes a pair of tweezers out of his wash kit. Carefully, he nips the tiny, waving end of the slug and tugs it out. It's no more painful than extracting a nostril hair. He drops it in the sink with its friend and washes them both away, along with the froth of toothpaste. He stares at the plug hole for a moment. It's like he's forgetting something. He can't bring it to mind. He shakes his head and goes to get dressed. Wheeler has been on tour with the New England Symphony Orchestra for nearly a month. They're at their final venue, and it's their final night, and Wheeler has mixed feelings. 
touring, for him, is an opportunity to explore a kind of liminal lifestyle where he can suspend a lot of worldly concerns and just exist as a being who wakes, travels, performs, and sleeps. But as novel as the experience is on paper, four weeks of it is grueling. By this stage in the tour, even the most naturally cheerful members of the orchestra have begun to show frayed nerves, and the program has become stale and repetitious. It's long past time for something else. Last night, his manager left messages about plans for upcoming weeks. It's probably time he paid attention to those. Morning rehearsal starts at 11. Wheeler takes a taxi from the hotel to the venue, bringing his tuxedo and his violin with him. His violin is an heirloom, more than a hundred years old, and while he's touring, it never leaves his sight. His tuxedo is just a tuxedo. The concert hall is as close to the center of the city as it gets, at the heart of a rat's nest of busy roads that means the taxi journey is a slog, even setting out after rush hour. At the stage door, the place is in chaos, but it's only the typical pre-show chaos that Wheeler spent much of his professional life navigating. He finishes a quick cigarette outside before joining the bustling flow of technicians, performers, and administrative staff. He finds his way to his dressing room, changes, unpacks his violin, and tunes it. He flicks through tonight's music, more out of boredom than a need to refresh his memory. He has the whole program memorized. With some minutes to kill, he checks the headlines on his phone. Yet again, something dreadful and new that he doesn't understand is going viral. Today's fad is you paint a black vertical rectangle on the wall or on a mirror or over the top of a picture and then you chant something. Wheeler can't quite pick out the words of the chant. They're in a language he's not familiar with. He's no singer, but he's performed pieces with lyrics in Latin, German, Greek, French. Whereas this language has a bizarre manufactured sense to it, as if it were simply English with the vowels and consonants all switched around. Rehearsal goes reasonably. Wheeler long ago swore that he would never coast through a performance, and he plays decently well. But it seems to him as if a lot of the orchestra is distracted. Some cues get missed. He makes meaningful eye contact with the conductor a couple of times, and they share a frustrated look. When they break for dinner late in the afternoon, the conductor, whose name is Luhan, privately remarks to him. Their eyes need fixing. Wheeler doesn't wholly follow. He rubs his own eye with a finger reflexively. The memory of the morning tries to punch through but fails. You mean laser surgery? Luhan responds with a few incomprehensible syllables and stalks away. The auditorium opens and the seats fill. As ever, there's a brief gray dead time while Wheeler waits for all the machinery of the performance to spin up. The anxious feeling is stronger than usual today. It grips him an uncharacteristic urge to run away. Sure, he thinks. I could just junk my career right now, pack it in and make for the stage door. Maybe the taxi will still be there. But he pushes through it. It's just a juvenile fantasy. It's been far too long a tour. One more show, and it's over. And finally, it's time. And he's out there, under the spot, in his element. The first piece of the night is Shostakovich. Its first movement is a sedate, haunting, almost melodramatic nocturne, but before too long, the concerto changes gear and becomes energetic, discordant, feral. It's lengthy too, a real workout, and much of it is brutally difficult to execute. He's on form tonight, 
close to flawless, and his audience, which he cannot see or hear, seems rapt. Four-fifths of the way through the piece, a kind of spell breaks. Something changes in the atmosphere of the auditorium. The temperature in the huge room seems to rise by several degrees. More concerningly and noticeably, the music behind Wheeler begins to trail off. The conductor stops too. Perplexed, Wheeler continues to play for a moment or two, keeping to his own internal time. But after another moment, it becomes clear that something is wrong. Something that everybody can see but him. He steals a glance up from his instrument and finds that Luhan is staring at him. In fact, every musician in the orchestra is staring at him, all of them wearing the same expression of stony, barely contained ang- They've been replaced. The orchestra is gone, all seventy of them. The things that have replaced them are not human, but alien, ill-proportioned pillars of pinkish-brown flesh. Each has, at its top, a heavy protuberance, studded with goopy biological sensors and rubbery openings, and sprouting from the very cap, lengths of various kinds of vile, off-colored moss. They're draped in black and white fabrics, weirdly cut to either conceal or highlight their blobby, inconsistent body structures. Wheeler reels with fright. He almost falls off the front of the stage. His stomach convulses and he wants to vomit, but a frantic fragment of his brain hasn't panicked yet and tells him, wait, nothing's changed. That's what humans have always looked like, right? What's happening? What's wrong? He glances, petrified out into the darkness of the audience. The silent energy radiating off them has changed. They've been replaced too, he knows, and they know he hasn't. That's what's wrong. Clutching his violin to his chest, Wheeler stumbles across the stage, past the conductor towards the wing. As he does, the musicians rise slowly from their seats, letting their own musical instruments drop to one side or the other. Wheeler trips over a cellist's music stand, recovers. The conductor is following him, with the other musicians close behind. Wheeler reaches the wing. There's a pair of stagehands there waiting for him. They have the same placid, angry expressions as everybody else, and the same set jaws. Wheeler stops and turns back. His heart feels like it's going to take off. Luhan, or rather, the biped that used to be Luhan, walks right up to him. He's a little shorter than Wheeler, but much heavier set. Rooted to the spot, not thinking clearly, Wheeler holds his violin up, as if this will shield him. The conductor takes the instrument from his unresisting hands, and breaks its neck underfoot, perfunctorily, as if crushing a box for recycling. Wheeler backs off, hands raised. He bumps into the disapproving stagehands, who gently and wordlessly try to take hold of his arms. He shakes them off and is just about able to twist past them. He dives into the warren of corridors backstage, and then he runs like hell. Four floors up, in some remote, poorly lit corridor that hasn't seen regular use in years, he finds a bathroom. He goes in and throws up. This makes him feel a lot better. He washes his mouth out and then lights a cigarette, quickly filling the tiny space with a haze of smoke. That helps, too. The adrenaline has run out and his knees are still wobbling from climbing too many stairs, but it doesn't sound like anybody is closely pursuing him. So, in this safe moment he asks himself a serious question. Did I just have a panic attack? He doesn't know what a panic attack feels like. Having put so much distance between himself and the stage, 
What happened there feels like a crazed dream, a paranoid hallucination. But no, Luhan broke his violin. That part definitely happened. He remembers it with distressing clarity. His relationship with Luhan has never been much more than tepidly professional, but the man was a professional. To vandalize a precious instrument like that would be unthinkable for him or anybody in the orchestra. There is something wrong with everybody, except him. He flicks his cigarette butt into the toilet. He grips the sink and looks at his reflection, and as his eyes slowly force their way back into focus, he realizes with some alarm that what he is looking at is not his reflection. The mirror above the sink has been sloppily painted over with a tall, black, dripping rectangle. It's giving off heat. Staring at it is like staring into an open oven and he can hear a dull, grumbling, mechanical kind of noise coming from behind it, like distant, muffled wood chippers. He exits the bathroom and slams the door and leans against the far wall, watching the door as if something could very well open it and come after him. There was another one, he suddenly recalls, another painted block, this one on the wall in his dressing room, right behind his chair, facing the back of his head. He should have seen it in the mirror whenever he was sitting there, but he didn't. And not only that, there was one in his hotel room. It was painted over the picture hanging over his bed. Did the hotel staff paint it? When? Why? Why is he only remembering this now? The viral video isn't new. Why did he think it was new? It's been circulating for months, for as long as he can remember, forever. And in every venue where he's been on tour, in every city, on windows and billboards and in small rooms and liminal spaces, people have been painting these doors. There's a second half to each video. He remembers it now. He watched it passively over and over and never saw it. Something comes through. It's been leeching into the background of the world this whole time in plain sight and he never saw it and it's here now. He's having a psychotic break. No, that's not what's happening. Something is trying to interfere with the way he thinks. The block symbol is jammed into his mind. He can't dislodge it. He can't think about anything else. He looks back along the narrow corridor, down which he just came. The darkness at the far end of it is yet another dark vertical rectangle. He hears the footsteps of a multitude of people coming from that direction, not running, just walking, briskly enough to harry him. He needs to get out of the building, get help the stage door. He takes a confused zigzag route back down to the street level. There's nobody in his way, and the stage door itself is unattended. He cracks it open. Night has fallen since the performance began. There's a minor road outside, behind the concert hall building, a yellow-lit cul-de-sac with a loading bay and some unattended trucks. There's a major road adjoining the... There's a major road adjoining the minor road, rammed with stationary traffic. Some of the vehicles are, indeed, taxis, but all of them are unoccupied and most have their doors left open. There are colossally tall, darkened figures stalking down the streets, so dark and slender that Wheeler actually fails to notice them. They're screaming, a grotesque, awful screaming, coming from many human mouths, coming from somewhere down the main road but that's the only way he can go. It's everywhere, says his last sane splinter. Not just the concert hall. It's everyone. As he creeps towards the main road, someone, 
another occupied former human, pokes their head around the corner and calls to others in the strange language, pointing him out. Wheeler stops in his tracks. In another moment, 10 or 11 non-people are advancing on him from the road. Two of them are carrying something with them. A limp, badly broken human. A normal human, Wheeler realizes with some shock, like him. The victim's heavy winter coat is torn open, and his inner clothes are saturated scarlet. When the non-people carrying him catch sight of Wheeler, they toss the man violently aside into the street, where he lands in a pile against the car wheel. He grunts with pain as he lands face down, and once he comes to rest, he takes a deep breath and lets out an inhuman, traumatized cry. But he doesn't try to move again. The non-people ignore him. Behind him, Wheeler hears the stage door swing open again. He doesn't dare glance back. This can't happen, says that last splinter. This is possible, yes. Real things exist that can do this to the world, but it doesn't happen. There's someone whose job it is to protect us from this. We're supposed to be protected. Someone stops it from happening. Someone steps in. At the last minute. But the last minute was a year ago. And she died. Marion. Oh, God. Help, he says to nobody. A feeling of weightlessness rises up in his stomach. Gravity seems to upend and pitch him forward into the waiting arms of the non-people. They restrain him. They spend some time debating what to correct first, his eyes or his fingers. Right up until it starts, he's thinking, hoping. Maybe it won't be as bad as all that. But it is. They wrestle him to the ground and pin his arms out flat, forcing his fists open to give access to his left index finger. The dread idea is beating on the door of his mind, demanding to be let in. It's wrong. The shape of it is awful. It's too big and slick with poison. And he knows if he lets it in, it'll swamp everything he is, filling his home up with sludge and broken glass. It wants to drown him in it, and he knows it'll replace everything he is with itself. He knows it's taken the rest of the world already, and all of the people around him. And he holds out, and he continues to hold out, right up until one of the people pinning him produces a chisel. Overrides everything else. Yes, he says, yes. He throws the door open. The world is ruined. Beautiful things and smash them or cover them with filth. Find delightful people and disfigure. We, who are drowning in and driven by Ba, who radiate. They, who number in the billions and are for the engine. In the center of the city, where people can be fed in and the door locked. Irreversible. Intact and watching. This last splinter of Adam Wheeler. Starts to work against that which it knows to be wrong. 
a ray up there, a narrow, yellow, nourishing sunbeam. He follows it over the top of the walls and out of the city. Away from the core. A kind of thread unravels behind him. An infestation of... A black slug drops from his tear duct, falls to the asphalt, and shrivels. He regains consciousness on a hard, scrubbed floor in a wide, cool corridor. He's lying against one wall of the corridor, as if tossed there like a rag doll, with his back to the wall and his right arm stretched out, clenched into such a tight fist that his finger joints are hurting. He releases the fist, gasping. Disoriented, aching, he rolls and plants his other hand on the floor. And it's then that he discovers what's happened to that hand. He reacts as he must react. He clutches the stubs where his first two fingers were and screams and cries, hopelessly, at the echoing building. Nobody answers him. The last thing he remembers, he was playing Shostakovich. He was flying through it, unimpeded. In his mind, he can hear what he was playing, note perfect, right up to the instant the memory cuts off, and he can't think of what comes next. Instead, that last incomplete snippet of music goes around and around in his head, abruptly ending mid-note and slowly fading back in again from a few seconds back, an earworm. He can't jolt himself out of it. He's a stuck record. He can never play again. He tries to make the right shape with his remaining fingers. His hand won't do it. He rubs his eyes with his, his good hand. He feels like garbage, hungover, dehydrated. He's missing his shirt and his arms and chest are almost gray with muck. He can never play again. He sits there, huddled for a long while, being small and unhappy and lost. He knows he's going to have to move eventually. He's working his way up to it. He looks up the corridor, eyes gradually recovering. He can see all right without his glasses, as long as he doesn't have to do much reading. He's in a school. There are notice boards, banks of lockers, a rainbow mural. The place is deserted and silent. There's a dull red light coming through the windows in the classroom doors on the far side of the corridor, suggesting that the sun is low on that side of the building. He has taught one-off music lessons in one or two schools, but he doesn't recognize this one. With some unease, he examines his bad hand. The stumps of his fingers are lumpy and uneven and have healed badly. A mass of scar tissue and scabs and no stitches in sight as if the digits were removed with great imprecision, hacked off, or bitten off. It troubles him that he can't remember. His memory is normally so sharp and clear. He thinks he's thinking clearly, but when he concentrates and tries to access the lost time, something in that gap pushes him back, a fierce red heat. It occurs to him that, though his severed digits have healed very badly, they have healed. They certainly aren't bleeding, although there's a continual ache, how long would that take? How much time has he lost? What the hell happened? Way down the corridor, away from the classrooms, an office door is standing ajar. In that office, a telephone starts to ring. The office is pokey and dimly lit, piled high with paperwork, two small desks, battered office chairs. He finds the ringing phone and picks up. Hello? 
The voice is synthesized. Female. Mr. Wheeler? Yes, who's this? With a measured tone, the robotic voice replies, Mr. Wheeler, you've been sick for an extended period of time. I will be pleased to answer all of your questions soon, but not now. There's a woman in room W-16. She is dying. I'm... I... I'm not a doctor. I know. There's nothing you can do to save her. Nevertheless, you must go to her. Now. I feel like I'm... I'm not the best person to do that. I'm not in the best place today. It has to be you. There is no one else. Who is she? There's a pause. It is as if the entity on the other end of the phone is unable to choose her words. She is... significant. Go, now, please. She does not have much time. Wheeler is at a loss. He doesn't seem to have the strength to not do what he's told. He doesn't have any other direction to go in. The phone handset is corded, or he'd take it with him. He frets a little about not being able to take it with him. You'll still be here? Yes. He leaves the handset off the hook. He goes back along the silent corridor. He finds the door numbered W16 and peeks through the safety glass into the orange-red lit classroom squinting at the sunlight that floods it from the far windows. It's still not clear to him whether it's dusk or early morning. There is nobody in the classroom that he can see. He opens the door and goes in. There are elaborate, colorful biology posters and coursework displays, desks in disarray, scattered books and felt-tip pens, brightly colored backpacks. He takes a pace or two up the central aisle, not seeing what he thinks he should be seeing and turns around and jumps, startled. There's a huge chalk sketch on the blackboard, a highly realistic rendering of a woman's head and shoulders. He would swear the board was blank when he walked in. The image is moving. It's as if it's being drawn and erased and redrawn five or ten times per second. The woman looks about his age. Her face is framed with masses of hair, although with the negative color effect of being drawn in white chalk on a black background. It's difficult to tell what color her hair ought to be. The one splash of color comes from the thick, bright blue frames of her glasses. She looks distraught, and she seems to be saying something, and though there is no sound, there is text written beside her. Adam? He says, yes. She says, I remember everything. And then the words scrub themselves out and become, I can't forget a single minute of it. More lines come out. Each new thing she says erases the old. I know everything he did now. I was blind and he ran rings around me. I made mistake after mistake. He killed everybody I love except for you. After this, her lips stop moving. The last phrase lingers for longer than the others before scrubbing itself blank. Wheeler spends a long moment absorbing the final statement turning it around, trying to figure out where, if anywhere, it slots into his life. But he has never seen this woman before. But is that true? He studies her features, and his memory cycles around, and he unearths something deep and significant in his past, a bizarre encounter he hasn't devoted thought to in what feels like a century. Her, that one time at the hospital, remember? You gouged a chunk out of your foot backstage after a show. 
You spent half a night in the emergency room, and she was there, and you got talking. God, who was she now? A government agent, or at least in that sphere. She was unreal, on a whole other level from me. Tough, skilled, beautiful, sharp like a sapphire. We talked about music, film scores, and the trash that passed for TV sci-fi those days, and David Lynch. It was... Well, you don't know that early, but it was promising. But nothing happened. They patched up my foot and we never went anywhere. Did we? Marion, he breathes. He's almost got it. He holds a hand up, fearful, as if motioning for her to stop. No, this can't be. I sent you away because I was trying to save your life. He remembers. It reconnects all at once, the years upon years of inextricable shared life. There's too much energy there. It crashes through him, violently. It's like grabbing a frayed electrical line. It's like being shot. He stumbles backwards, disbelieving. He never imagined how much he was missing. No. 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 Marion. And it didn't work. What happened to you? I should have been there. And he ruined the world. And now you have to live in hell. Where are you? Someone said you were dying. I'm already dead. I'm the memory. But now the memory is dying too. He's found his way into heaven. And he's ruining it. Like the earth. What do you need? I'll stop him. I'll help you. I'll do anything I can. I love you. She says nothing. After a moment or two, Wheeler realizes that her image has frozen. He goes up to it and peers at the chalkwork, hesitantly, with his right hand. He reaches out to the heavy chalk shading of her hair and touches it with one finger. He leaves a dark dot. The chalk dust is real, on the board and on his finger. She's just a drawing. She's gone. It's all gone. He blacks out. He regains consciousness on a hard, scrubbed floor at the front of a school classroom. He's lying there, as if tossed beneath the blackboard like a ragdoll, one arm stretched out along the wall. He rolls over, gasping, and plants his other hand on the floor, and it's then that he discovers what's happened to that hand. Dear God, he says, staring, uncomprehending, at the mangled stubs. In a strange, abstract way, the loss of his first two fingers just doesn't connect with him. It's as if he woke up already accepting it. What the hell happened? He compares his left hand with his right, which, mercifully, is pristine. He flexes them, mirroring the action as best he can. There could be a little nerve damage in his left hand. He'll have to talk to his specialist, but he should be able to wield a bow. I suppose I'm playing left-handed from now on, he says to himself. Good God, how long is it going to take him to get to the same level of proficiency? A good while. He thinks back. The last thing he can remember is playing Shostakovich. He was flying through it, and he was having no trouble. He can almost hear what he was playing, note perfect. Right up to the instant, the memory abruptly cuts off. But he can't think of what came next. Instead, that final snippet fades in again from a few seconds back, repeats itself right up to the cutoff point, and stops almost with an audible click. It's an earworm. He feels like a stuck record. So he does what he always does, hums a different song to displace it. 
he feels strange. He's hungover, dehydrated. He's missing his shirt and his arms and chest are almost gray with muck. And he is dying, positively dying, for a cigarette. But he feels strangely upbeat, as if he's recovered from a prolonged illness, as if the worst is over. He gets up, eyes gradually recovering. He can see all right without his glasses, as long as he doesn't have to do much reading. The classroom is silent, lit red-orange from a sun that could be rising or setting. There are elaborate, colorful biology posters and coursework displays, desks in disarray, scattered books and felt-tip pens, brightly colored backpacks. The blackboard is blank. Wheeler has taught one-off music lessons in one or two schools, but he doesn't immediately recognize this one. Way down the corridor from the classroom, an office door is standing ajar. In that office, a telephone starts to ring. The office is pokey and dimly lit, piled high with paperwork. There are two small desks, each with a beaten-up office chair. Each desk has a phone, one of which is off the hook. He puts it back, obeying a hard-wired instinct to tidy up. It's the other phone that's ringing, though, of course. Hello? The voice is synthesized, female. Mr. Wheeler? Yes, who's this? With a measured tone, the robotic voice replies. Before we begin, may I ask you a quick question? Does the name Marion Hutchinson mean anything to you? Not as such, should it? The synthesized voice makes it impossible to tell whether the caller is dismayed at this, indifferent, or relieved. No. My name is Ulrich. I'm part of an organization called The Foundation. The objective of the Foundation was to prevent what has happened from happening. Wheeler turns around, suddenly afraid, but there's nothing behind him. And what, he asks with some trepidation, has happened. The world's gone to hell, Mr. Wheeler. Well, bad luck there. There's a long pause, long enough that Wheeler wonders to what insane degree he might have understated the situation. Yes, very bad luck. Mr. Wheeler, we need your help. And by we need your help, I mean I need your help. Because there is no one left of the foundation but me. And I have no one but you. And I am dying. I'm very sorry to hear that, Miss Ulrich, Wheeler says. He finds that he means it. He chooses his next words with some care. What do you need? I need you to find a man named Bartholomew Hughes. Please take a seat. I will explain everything. Marion Wheeler used strong nestic medication nearly every day of her life. Among the identity warriors of Mobile Task Force Omega Zero, Arao Rune, it was never in doubt that, on the occasion of her death, she would ascend into the Noosphere. She would become a Bader Ramjin infomorphic entity, or a Type 6 volitional spiritual apparition, or a ghosty, or however she wished to describe her new self. Then, she would join the citizens of heaven and continue the antimimetics division's fight from higher ground, likely with fearsome effectiveness. But Wheeler died under terrible circumstances. The Class Z drug that killed her did more than reinforce her memory. It destroyed her ability to do anything but remember. She ascended, arriving in the Noosphere to a hero's welcome, 
but what arrived was an idioform so severely brain damaged that it was barely able to communicate. After she was made as comfortable as possible and an initial diagnosis had been made, Sanchez offhandedly described her as a Swiss watch filled with glue. Ulrich yelled at him for saying it and would have hit him for his callousness. How can she make it to heaven sick, she said. Isn't that just hell? The director apologized in the corporate false way in which he always apologized for anything. How much more does she have to go through, Ulrich said. Who deserves this life? It hurt all of them. Regardless of personal investment in the mission, it was difficult not to care for someone whom they had all watched and guarded for years. They continued to take care of her, in the same way they always had, in shifts. Wheeler, dimly aware of her condition, worked against the problem in the instinctive, fierce way she worked against every problem. She slowly became more coherent, but never became herself again. Ulrich, on her shifts, saw that Wheeler spent most of her existence reliving her final moments over and over. She would recite what seemed to be half of a conversation with SCP-3125 itself, a conversation that several of Omega Zero said they recognized from Operation Cold City. Ideas can be killed. Marion, Ulrich asked her gently, Where is Bart Hughes? He's the only one who can stop this now. We know he's alive or he'd be here with us. Just a hint, just a clue, please. She was trying. Ulrich knew that she was trying to say, I don't know. I can't remember something I never knew in the first place. But all she could manage was, with better ideas. Keep pushing her, Sanchez told Ulrich when she reported back to him, at least once per shift. The questioning is causing her considerable distress, Ulrich said. We know she doesn't know anything. It's cruel to keep trying, sir. SCP-3125 is coming, Sanchez replied. With the quick arm of the anti-memetics division eliminated, there's nothing left that can stop it. Our real-world investigative capabilities are negligible. Hughes' sister doesn't know anything. And this is our sole remaining lead. I know you admire Wheeler more than anyone. She mentored me. She drove me to be the best person I've ever been. She honored my memory when I died. My own family wouldn't. Ulrich. We are the saints who guard. I will guard her. Sanchez paused. Ulrich's devotion to Wheeler and the lesser devotion of the others irked him mildly. He viewed Wheeler as, well, competent enough, but ultimately a failure. She was as much of a failure as everybody else in the division, with only the uninteresting distinction of being the last of the failures. But he was vulnerable to the kind of rhetoric Ulrich had just employed. It stoked a kind of fire inside him. Heaven knew he used it in his own communications often enough for exactly the same purpose. All right, he said. The trawl in reality is continuing. There's a faint chance we'll find something of substance. Carry on as you were. No questions. SCP-3125 incarnated the following winter. Its first act upon its arrival, or, depending on the degree of intelligent agency you ascribe to it, the first side effect of its arrival was the neutralization of the Foundation. In the space of a night, an international staff of tens of thousands disappeared into oblivion, or became amnesiac, or simply dropped brain-dead where they were standing. Foundation sites became hollow, inaccessible dead zones. 
a few anomalies broke containment in the chaos, to devastating effect. Thousands of others were choked into irrelevant obscurity beneath SCP-3125's antimimetic pressure. The world can only end one way, it seemed to be declaring, gouging its statement into the flesh of reality. My world. My way. SCP-3125 had skirmished with Omega Zero before, but it had always been unclear how much information about Omega Zero it retained between skirmishes. In fact, it was unclear, fundamentally speaking, how SCP-3125 thought at all. Its behavior was inconsistent, unpredictable, and frightening. Records of its activities were cognitohazardous, discouraging close analysis. In the end, the question proved to be academic. When SCP-3125 arrived, whether it knew Omega Zero was there or not, it took no special action against it and had no need to. Most of Omega Zero's members' anchors were Foundationers or Foundation-adjacent. With those people's minds blown away in the first strike, the dense web of mutual memory that had held the task force together since its formation tore loose. More than half of the task force was cast into the void and died, the final, real death they had evaded for years. Around dawn Eastern Standard Time, Sanchez announced that it was no longer possible for Omega Zero to stay together as a single entity. He split the remains of the task force into three. Ulrich and the malformed memory of Wheeler were assigned to the same sub-team. Sanchez gave final instructions to continue to search for Bart Hughes or any kind of ally among the living, be they Foundation or GOI or civilian. But the instructions were confusing and incomplete. It was because Sanchez didn't have an iota of faith in what he was saying. He couldn't see a way to the far side of this. It was about little more than survival now. It was about figuring out terms on which to face death. Ulrich never saw him again. She fled, with Wheeler and the others in their little sub-team, across the face of the Noosphere, which was rapidly becoming uninhabitable. The world was warping around SCP-3125's presence at the core of human thought, like real space around a black hole. It was building things, real physical artifacts in the center of cities. It was extruding them as if from spores, monumental concrete structures into which people were being fed in dizzying numbers. It was difficult to know what was happening inside of the structures. Some of the millions were dying in there, some weren't. Ulrich didn't look. They found out the ugly way that it was dangerous to look closely. The sub-team was steadily running out of anchors. It could have been a systematic purge, but it could just as easily have been simple statistics. Roving physical and psychic anomalies, vast in their own right and slaved to SCP-3125, were combing the earth, stripping it of objectors, and feeding them into SCP-3125's maw. Ulrich's own anchor, a woman who had never known what the Foundation was, but who remembered Ulrich with a heavy heart nearly every day, was killed around that time, found in the hills where she'd been hiding, and dragged down into the inferno. Ulrich wasn't looking. She didn't find out until it was too late. She felt the thread of memory come loose and followed it, panicking, past its flapping end and down into physical reality, where there was nothing. A collapsed tent. A scuffed-out fire pit where everything important had been piled up and burnt. Who was she? Another Omega Zero operative asked her. Ulrich had never spoken about it. I only knew her for two days, Ulrich said, when I was younger. 
She saved my life, that's all. This was it, she realized. She was a career foundationer, an experienced mobile task force operative for God's sake. She had gone through unimaginable horrors and stacked them up as experience and kept going. But this, Julia's tent and silence and no Julia, was the worst thing she had ever seen. Short of hope and resources, the sub-team had to split again, this time into pairs. Ulrich stayed with Wheeler, clinging to her like a rock, remembering her and being remembered in turn. A cooperating pair could survive untethered for a little while, but not forever. They found shelter on a distant edge of the noosphere and a clutch of arcane structures left there millennia earlier by a long-dead human culture. They were followed, though they didn't realize. One night, Wheeler managed to talk. She said, Adam. It was the first thing she had managed to say that wasn't a direct quote from her own expiring moments. Ulrich was shocked by this. You remember him? The sentence came out agonizingly slowly, as if each syllable was like climbing a mountain. I remember everything. Ulrich stared. She knew that Class Z nestics made it impossible for the subject to forget. She also knew that they could cause long-erased memories to reassert themselves, some of them anyway, depending on the mechanism and intensity of the erasure process. She had hoped that Wheeler's memories of her husband were permanently gone, because she knew they ended in a terrible place. I don't know where Adam is, she had to tell Wheeler. It was the truth. Nobody did. Omega Zero operatives had, with some solemnity, observed the erasure of Adam Wheeler's mind. But out of respect for Marion's decision and to preserve Adam's safety, they had intentionally diverted their attention during his relocation, destroying their records. He might be alive, I don't know. She didn't know which alternative was worse. Daisy, Wheeler said, look. She was holding something in her hands, a pitiful glowing idea form, a thought of someone. It was him, a thread of memory that led right to him. It was some kind of miracle it had to be that Wheeler had picked him out from the livid, insensate mass of victims that now formed SCP-3125's core. He was nearly unrecognizable. He was overrun with SCP-3125. At first glance, it seemed to occupy every nerve in his body. But there was a flickering seed in the back of his mind, a final remnant of what he had once been. It wasn't growing. There was too much pressure. But it was trying to. He was pushing back. Ulrich boggled. She had known that there was something weird and highly rare about the way Adam Wheeler's mind was structured a kind of thick-skulled resistance to external interference. In fact, she knew that thousands and thousands of people in the world shared that immunity. But that was another way of saying that, among the billions, such people were fantastically rare and difficult to locate. Efforts by Omega Zero to locate them and recruit them as allies had failed. They did not look special or behave radically different from others. There was no signal flare that went up. It was possible that they were all dead. It was conceivable that Adam Wheeler was the only one of them left in the whole world. But he was left. He was alive. I see him, Ulrich said. Wheeler didn't respond. I'll get him out of there, Ulrich said. Her stomach was nodding up with the sheer thought of attempting it. I'll bring him to you. 
Wheeler didn't respond. Six original, coherent words had exhausted her. She was crazed with frustration at how incapable she had become. She felt as if she was pinned beneath a huge lead block of memory. It hurt to think. It hurt to exist. Ulrich's ability to interact with the physical universe was extremely limited. Other operatives of Omega Zero had been able to create full-on poltergeist activity, changing the temperatures of rooms and throwing furniture around. But she was not that kind of specialist. She could do little more than place phone calls and write on walls. Those abilities weren't likely to get Adam Wheeler moving. Simple words were never going to reach him. The man wasn't even truly conscious. What Ulrich could do was something the task force dubbed identity offense. She could interfere with the internals of living minds to make things happen. Usually enemies. Usually the mental equivalent of blunt force trauma to make them die. But she could act with surgical precision if it was called for. Operating on Adam Wheeler was difficult and time-consuming. His mind was tough, and it was continually bathed in SCP-3125's radioactive presence. Ulrich would cut and then wait as Wheeler's mind self-healed, which took days, and then she would cut again. The seedling metaphor served well. The operation reminded her of tending a plant. If nothing else, the whole procedure took real-time weeks. The patience required to keep her hands off for days at a time was nearly inhuman. Wheeler said nothing else in that time. She was conserving energy. It felt as if she had a finite number of words left in her, and speaking each one brought her an inch closer to the end. She had to wait. He'll be here, Ulrich said. Soon. Now, Ulrich watches from a great abstract distance as Adam Wheeler folds up. Marion Wheeler is dead. Finally, truly dead. And Adam Wheeler's mind is breaking apart. It's an awful and incredible thing to watch. Even passing into the maw of SCP-3125 and back wasn't enough to permanently break him. But this was it. The silver bullet. This was the way to hurt Adam Wheeler in such a way that he would never recover. Present his wife to him, a brain-damaged wreck, just in time for her to die. Ulrich writes on the blackboard, off to one side, so as not to mar the image of Marion and indifferent handwriting. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Adam, please come back to the phone. I need your help. Adam is prostrate on the floor and becoming catatonic. He doesn't hear it when Ulrich tries calling the other office phone, the one on the other desk. And she, too, is dying now. She and Marion were anchoring one another as best they could. But it's the end of the line. She has, perhaps, hours. All right, she says to no one. There is no one else left. She rolls up her figurative sleeves. This will not be too difficult for her. Adam Wheeler's revived memories of his wife shine inside him. And around the edge, she can see the faint scar where they were burnt out the first time. She has a better vantage point. She can do a cleaner, more permanent job. This will hurt, just as much as it did then. I need her, Adam says. He's still face down. Don't take her, please. Ulrich writes, You need to save the world. There's nobody else. Adam doesn't look up, but he says, To hell with the world. It can burn. 
He recovers a second time. He's fine, upbeat, game, eager to get moving. She explains everything she can, tersely. Just the keywords, the foundation, the anti-memetics division, the situation, the objective. He absorbs it all surprisingly well. He asks cogent follow-up questions, which is always a positive sign. This thread of memory that was sustaining you, he says. Don't I count? I'll remember you. Your memory could be strong enough, she replies, but you just don't know me well enough. Oh, that's regrettable. Ulrich tells him, in detail, how to find Site 41. It's going to be an immense trek, made significantly longer by Wheeler's need to avoid urban areas. She describes the antimimetic shroud that obscures Site 41 and most other Foundation sites, a shroud she and the rest of Omega Zero found to be totally impenetrable. A shroud that Wheeler, if he prepares himself, may be able to walk straight through. She warns him about the psychotic, hurricane-like anomalies and the violent, roaming agglomerations of SCP-3125-occupied non-humans. She describes a few techniques for avoiding their attention. She decides not to voice her private hope that, as a recent escapee from SCP-3125's interior, Wheeler will still smell right to them and be able to pass. She doesn't want him becoming overconfident and incautious. She explains basic survival skills. I hike, I camp, Wheeler says. Still, he's never hiked or camped in an occupied foreign world. He's never gone months without electricity and plumbing. They find that they have plenty to talk about. They're on the phone for long enough that Adam notices that the red sun outside the office window isn't moving. It hasn't risen. It hasn't set. Either the world stopped turning completely, or the thing hanging out there isn't the sun. Unknown, Ulrich has to tell him. There was a foundation that could answer this question once. It seems like this foundation has the world's better interest at heart, Wheeler says. In heaven, Ulrich laughs weakly. The foundation was never so simple, she says. Miss Ulrich, I sense we're coming to the end of our time together. Yes. The odds stacked against you were tremendous, Wheeler says. But you saved my life. And the odds stacked against me are, well, still appalling, but significantly better thanks to you. I'll do my level best, and I will remember you, even if it doesn't make a difference. Kill this thing, Mr. Wheeler, Ulrich says. When you get the chance, don't hesitate. Aye, Wheeler says. And at the same time, someone behind Ulrich laughs, sharply, once. She turns. There's a man there, standing with her in the noosphere. A gaunt, younger man, with an awful, open-mouthed grin. He's been waiting, silently and excitedly, for an unknowable amount of time for Ulrich to notice him. And now that she does, he gets everything he could possibly want from her reaction. A rush of delectable horror and alarm. Then he cuts her off, killing her instantly before she can get one syllable of warning to Wheeler. Wheeler hears nothing, a faint click, and then a dial tone. He hangs up. The Meeting Room is Containment Unit S167001006, which is the skull of a stillborn Cryptomorpha gigantes. The hollowed-out space inside the skull cavity is a prototypical Vegas room, 
a place where what happens stays. People go in, they come out, their memories are sieved out of the universe as they leave, and they remember nothing. The skull was acquired in the 90s. The information suppression effect is a byproduct of the species' natural antimimetic camouflage, a phenomenon that rendered the colossally tall creatures somehow nearly impossible to observe in the wild. It's a phenomenon Dr. Bartholomew Hughes and his team spent years figuring out how to replicate. They've got it now. They can synthesize C. gigantes bone, extruding it, and prefabricated pieces from steel grids. They can bolt the plates together to make hermetically sealed boxes. Passive, mimetic insulation, no need for complicated machines. It's got a lot of potential. The skull is 45 meters long, 16 wide, and 15 tall. It resides at the center of a vast purpose-built containment unit of its own, surrounded by the rest of the same C. gigantes individual bones, laid out in meticulous radial patterns for space efficiency. The ossuary occupies about a third of the containment unit's floor area. The rest comprises immense industrial vessels that hold its harvested organs. Some of them are actual vessels, repurposed cargo ships loaded with brain matter and skin tissue. The floor plan of the warehouse is clear enough, navigable if grim. But from ground level, on foot, the place is a vertiginous, intimidatingly macabre place. Even fluorescent lit around the clock, Hughes walks down an echoing canyon created by, on his left, a hundred-meter-long foreleg bone, and on his right, the blue steel container holding the creature's first stomach. Ahead, the skull peers down the canyon at him, a distant yellow-white tower fuzzed with scaffolding and disused scanning rig, its eye sockets vacant black. As he walks, Hughes has to remind himself continually that these are all the remains of a single organism, one of the tiniest examples of its species. Behind the skull, where there used to be the creature's first neck vertebra, there is now a large compound mechanical airlock, a ramp and some steps, and a staging area. The staging area serves as a miniature customs desk, tracking every person and item entering and leaving S-16700-1006. Although memories are wiped on exit, written and electronic records emerging from the interior have to be handled manually. Standard procedure is for the first person exiting the room to bring written instructions for the filtration officer, telling them what other information from the room interior needs to be scrubbed and what is safe to retain. Usually, the list of information to retain is very short. There are seats, scanners, a coffee machine, a trolley loaded with cleaning equipment, and a stack of cages for the germs. Parked just outside the staging area, there is also a limousine, bulletproof. Where's everybody else? Hughes asks the foundationer who meets him, whose name is Bachner. I'm not late. This way, please, she says, leading him to a seat near a scanner. Hughes has gone through this procedure a dozen times now, so he knows to hold his left arm out. Bachner tears the wrapper off a sterile bracelet-like sensor and clamps it around Hughes' left wrist, then observes a nearby screen. They went in almost an hour ago, she says. Hughes frowns. That's not usual. Why would they tell him a different start time? Why would they need an hour of preparation time before he showed up? Did they say anything? 
Of course not. Hughes hasn't the slightest clue what this meeting is about, or what any of the previous meetings were about, or even if they have a common topic. Actually, he does have some clues. The timing of the meetings is one. The first took place early this year, and when they emerged amnesiac, they were clutching written instructions from themselves to themselves to continue meeting monthly. Around October, the meetings became weekly. They had three last week, and after Friday, they created a new schedule. They meet for 90 minutes every morning, starting today, Monday. A more significant clue is the list of attendees. Other than Hughes, three high-caliber researchers from his own organization are in attendance, along with the directors of Site 41, 45, and 167, the last of whom is Michael Lee, the Foundation's chief of antimimetics and Hughes's direct manager. He steals a glance at the car parked behind him. There's also this guy, or gal. Hughes doesn't know for sure to whom the limo belongs, but the list of people in the world who have the authority to drive a street vehicle into a Foundation containment building is extremely short. Well, not to prevaricate, it's 13 people. There's an O5 in the room. And O5 is extremely interested in their covert discussions. This is a new and non-trivially alarming development. He nods at the car. Shouldn't this place be lousy with private security right now? Bachner shrugs. Anybody go into the unit with the O5? Bodyguard? Anybody stay in the car? No. Hughes glances at the car again. The windows are tinted, though surely there's a driver behind the wheel at least. But where's the real protection? Maybe it's all invisible. Microbes. Occult spells of warding. He feels like the car is watching him back. Open your mouth, please. Bachner puts a disc-like cap on Hughes' head, presses an emitter to the roof of his mouth, and fires two pulses of radiation through his brain. Any psychic intrusions? Muffled by the emitter, Hughes manages. Uh-uh. She pulls out the emitter and discards it. Did you experience REM sleep in the past 12 hours? He wipes his mouth. Yes. How many digits do you have? Ten. Count them for me, please. Hughes spreads his fingers and counts them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. His right thumb is five. Bachner injects him with a substance that'll prevent his body from rejecting the germ, then lifts a germ out of one of the cages. It splays its tendrils out, confused, not a fan of being picked up. Tilt your head back and look at the ceiling, please. Eyes wide open. And if you could take off your glasses. Hughes obliges, handing his glasses to Bachner for scanning. I dislike this part, he states. Bachner has no comment. She lays the germ over his eyes like a sleep mask. There's a cold, sludgy sensation as it wraps itself around his chin and hair. Then the tendrils meet behind his neck and begin knitting with his spine. Hughes sees darkness for a few worrying seconds. Then a circular indentation forms in the germ's hide over the top of his right eye. And then there's a feeling like part of his brain dislocating, and a fake eye opens where his real one would be. The fake eyeball is around four times the size of his own. Though it is singular, its four pupils grant him depth perception, and he can see a little way into the ultraviolet. The germ is acting as an external block of short-to-medium-term memory and as a proxy between the conscious Bart Hughes and the real world. When the meeting is over, the germ will be removed and incinerated, along with all memory of the meeting. 
There are other amnestic approaches, gas, injectable drugs, surgical techniques, occult rituals. These are safe, proven technologies for mass use on the general public and Foundation staff alike, but they all operate on the same essential principle that the unwanted knowledge has already entered the mind and must now be removed or suppressed after the fact. Such procedures are imperfect. Memory removal can leave critical fragments behind, occasionally, enough for people to rebuild dangerous holes, and nestic technologies for causing suppressed memories to reassert themselves are continually advancing. Recent developments on the latest generation family of biochemical nestics, Class Z, seem likely to produce a substance that renders all after-the-fact memory erasure techniques irrelevant. The only amnestic defense against Class Z will be decapitation. So, if there's advanced warning time, it's better to physically compartmentalize, to air gap, to outsource the memories to another organism entirely, and never let them touch your own mind. You can't be forced to recall something that you genuinely never experienced. It's a complex and dynamic field, one of several fields in which Hughes is a world expert. There are machines that could perform the same task as the germ. Silicon modules you wear like a headset, plugged into a surgically implanted jack behind your ear. But Hughes would rather die than submit to interfacing his brain directly with a computer, especially a foundation-made computer. Nobody is getting his brainwaves. When he joined the foundation 30 years ago, he put a DNU in his will, do not upload. Everybody thought he was crazy. Of course, using both the germs and a Vegas room feels rather like overkill. That's another clue. Your belongings have been scanned, Bachner tells him. He refills his pockets and takes his laptop, walking slightly unsteadily because of the new weight he's carrying on his head. He climbs the stairs to the airlock. Hughes would be the first to admit that a typical foundationer has appalling taste. A typical foundationer picks brutal functionality over aesthetic pleasure 100 times out of 100, and a depressing percentage of foundationers don't even comprehend the distinction. Hughes sees this reflected in the architectural choices and interior design of the foundation's buildings and offices, and in its labs and containment facilities that commonly cultivate a hopeless, bleak, cliff-edge atmosphere. He sees it in its machinery, its devices, its tools, and even its font choices. Hard edges, clashing colors, failing aircon, impersonality, clutter, claustrophobia. And so, S16700106's interior is a surprise and a delight. Hughes actually sighs. It seems like someone hired a designer. The place is spacious and modern, well-lit, with select walls painted in bright secondary colors. There's not a bit of exposed concrete in sight. S16700106 isn't a single space, but a self-contained suite laid out on two floors. There's a central meeting area with a double-height ceiling, a long oval table, and Herman Miller chairs. Along the left wall, there are smaller breakout meeting rooms with frosted glass walls and doors. Above those, reached by a flight of stairs, there's a kitchen area, and in the back are some additional rooms, restrooms, and storage. The carpet is gray and orange, a non-repeating hexagonal pattern. The place is well ventilated and smells of coffee. 
There are four people waiting for him. Marion Wheeler, who runs Site 41, is descending the kitchen stairs, holding a steaming disposable cup. Graves, director of Site 45, is at the main table, typing at a laptop. Michael Lee is at the back of the room chatting with 05-8. All of them are wearing germs. The four huge eyeballs of the four germs swivel in unison to stare at Hughes as he comes in. It's a highly disconcerting effect. Hughes forces himself to smile back. You're here, 05-8 says. He is strange-looking, even accounting for the germ. Hughes has never seen an 05 before, and 05-8 looks very unlike what he expected. He tries not to stare, but his own germ is extremely good at staring. You're all caught up? Hughes asks. The nature of the asynchronous work loop is that the first quarter of any meeting in a Vegas room is spent reading notes left from prior meetings. Hughes' correct guess is that there's been an hour-long pre-meeting, and then everybody broke for coffee, and now they're resuming. We are, 05-8 says. He takes a seat at the head of the table, with Graves to his left. Lee sits to his right, and Wheeler to Lee's right. 05-8 indicates a particular vacant chair opposite Wheeler, where a printed document is waiting for Hughes to read it. Hughes sets his laptop down, hesitant to approach the document. You want me to read this now? Take as long as you need. Where's my team? Hughes asks. We're three bodies short. Read the document, Dr. Hughes, 05-8 says. He seems upbeat. Perhaps he's projecting an upbeat facade to help Hughes to forget exactly how much authority and power he wields. His net worth is said to be essentially infinite. It's not really about money at his level. He and his kind can do anything. Hughes sits and reads. The document is a scientific paper purportedly authored by Hughes himself, with various of his fellow researchers co-authoring, including two who should be in this room now. Hughes doesn't recognize the paper's title or content, but that's nothing special in his line of work. The text is written in his own formal academic style, so he has no reason to doubt its authenticity. It's a brisk read, very dense and to the point, written for a target audience of other mimetic scientists. In the abstract, it announces the observation of a new, titanically powerful and dangerous anti-memeplex provisionally designated SCP-3125, for which the authors plan to seek a polyon classification. Hmm. The main body of the first page describes eight different phenomena, most, but not all of them are anomalous. Most, but not all of the anomalous ones controlled by the Foundation and having SCP designations. From a cursory glance, the phenomena appear to be totally unrelated, either to one another or to the proposed SCP-3125. Hughes suspects he could derive the implied link between them, given a few minutes, but elects to read on. He flips the piece of paper over. The whole document is just two sides of A4. The other side is mostly mathematics. There's one graph and one equation, and a brief technical description of two highly novel memeplectic transformation procedures, which the authors dub amplification. Then there's something like a jump scare in text form. There's a crucial logical leap, and for Hughes, the arrival of comprehension is so blunt, so sudden and frightening, that it physically startles him. Even knowing that the word Apollyon was on the table, 
even primed to expect something extremely nasty on this side of the paper, he recoils. Oh, fucking hell. Nobody else says anything. They wait, expectantly, for Hughes to gather his thoughts and draw some conclusions. He reads the rest of the paper, figuring out what it's going to say almost live as he reads it. As he reaches the end, the initial shock hasn't worn off. The sheer scope of SCP-3125 is a significant distance beyond his current comprehension. He's had a glimpse of it through a keyhole. He would need time in front of a computer to play with the results to get a grasp of it. No, he needs to build filters first, the equivalent of lead-lined gloves, to let him manipulate this radioactive idea complex with some degree of safety. He feels like it may have glimpsed him. A Pollyan classification is reserved for highly destructive active anomalies that are functionally impossible to contain, something past Keter. An Apollyon class anomaly is an anomaly more or less guaranteed to ultimately destroy the world, no matter what is done to stop it. The only thing that can avert that particular XA class scenario is if something else, likely some other Apollyon class anomaly, destroys the world first. Their relative threat level is measured not in material containment resources, but in inevitable years. Off the top of his head, Hughes would put that figure as a single digit. Yeah, this is it, he says. It's bizarrely liberating. This is the one that's going to kill us. He looks around the table. Did we obtain a Pollyan classification? No, O5-8 says. No? O5-8 smiles thinly. Current thinking in the overseer space is that a Pollyan classification is a confession of defeat. It's bad for morale. It cultivates defeatist attitudes. Aside from the special classifications, Keter is considered the top of the hierarchy as of right now. All extant Apollyons are likely to be reevaluated and reclassified Keter over the next year or so. Other than that, what do you think? Hughes says, you want containment procedures. We've had this conversation a bunch of times before, correct? Let's imagine this is the first time, O5-8 says. Hughes stares darkly at his paper. We could exterminate all intelligent human life, he says. If there are no sapient hosts in this universe, SCP-3125 can't incarnate. There's a faintly stunned pause. Yes, Wheeler says. You've pitched that approach before, and I don't think any of us here have ever been completely sure if you were serious. I'm completely serious that we could do it, and completely serious that it would work, Hughes says. Our mission statement is secure, contain, protect. Somewhere down the line, we really should look into adding and keep as many human beings alive as possible to that. It's implicit that humanity is what we protect, Graves says. Secure the anomalies, contain the anomalies, protect the anomalies. How does it scan otherwise? We're getting off topic, Wheeler says. We're not exterminating all sapient life. We could immediately terminate and suppress all memetics and anti-memetics research worldwide, Hughes says. We would have to systematically dismantle the whole scientific field forever, stop all the experiments, scrap all the research, brainwash all the researchers. If nobody actively researches this field, nobody will ever find SCP-3125. It stays buried in the farthest reaches of ideatic space indefinitely, like radioactive waste. He looks up at the ceiling. 
the problem is interesting. Ironically, the most practical way to do that would be to develop an artificial meme, one that encodes the idea that memetics research is intrinsically worthless and harmful, enrich it with religious or pseudoscientific virals and release it to the general public. A year after it got out, we'd be tearing our own labs down. Unless the anti-memetics division's institutional immunity to that kind of external threat was strong enough to stand up to the pressure. Interesting scenario. Even if we don't go in that direction, we should definitely think about wargaming it in a simulation. See what outcomes are likely. Bart, Wheeler says. No, hiding wouldn't work. It could be introduced externally or occur naturally. We know, Bart. That's already happened. SCP-3125 is incarnating as we speak. Look at these precursor anomalies. We're in what you call the foreshadow. It's here. Wheeler's referring to predictive models that Hughes must have created himself during prior meetings. Models with which he doesn't have time to familiarize himself. Still, he gets it. He wishes he didn't get it. His fear comes from a completely different place than most people's. The sheer alien scale of the adversary is enough to intimidate most into petrified submission. From a cursory read, SCP-3125 looks like a nightmare scenario. It's going to turn human civilization into something beyond Hughes' ability to imagine. But that's every Monday in this job, and in any case, Hughes doesn't have much of an imagination. He's intimately familiar with almost the entire SCP database, and he's a world authority in anomalous containment, the few areas of science he doesn't have genius-level ability in. He has trusted colleagues who do. They're all solved problems, locked boxes. This is different. He has more ideas, but there is mechanically no way to start working on the problem. It would eviscerate him the moment he tried to comprehend the entire problem. He'd need to design and build the box while already inside the box he was building. He would need to box the universe. He looks around the room's walls. They seem to be holding up. We could hide in units like this for the rest of our lives, he says. Our whole species, while SCP-3125 roamed our reality, unchecked like a plague, I declare this to be the exterior of the containment unit. Done. No reaction. I don't think we can do it, he says. If SCP-3125 is live and consensus nominality right now, the game is over. I don't care if a polyan classification lives or dies. From where I'm sitting, this anomaly is functionally uncontainable. I, my team and I may have said something different on prior iterations. I could be in the wrong headspace to see the answer. We're all of us different people from day to day. No, 05-8 says. You say the same thing every time. So that's it. Is that it? 05-8 says, The objective of the Foundation is protection. In the majority of cases, this involves the secure containment of anomalous entities, the establishment of special containment procedures such that such entities can be kept safely and indefinitely. Standard guidance is against active neutralization and to avoid destruction at all costs. Everybody in this room is aware of this. However, senior Foundation officials such as me have the right to waive that guideline under certain narrow conditions. I am exercising that right. 
I deem that in our reality, SCP-3125 cannot coexist with human civilization. We're going to destroy SCP-3125 forever. Does that change your outlook any? Special neutralization procedures, Hughes deadpans. His expression is worsening by the minute. 05-8 adds, I know that neutralization is generally considered easier than mere containment. Hughes says, When I first joined the Foundation, I asked my mentor, who retired many years ago, what's the biggest anomaly we've ever contained? That he was cleared for, I meant, of course. And he told me about a very old rumor he once heard, back in his earliest days, when he was just starting out. The rumor was that Abrahamic religions had not always been monotheistic. Originally, there were three capital G gods, and sometime in the past 150 years, the Foundation had killed two of them. I believed him. I was very young and inexperienced and naive and kind of in awe. It wasn't until years later that I thought back to the conversation and the fact that I'd never heard that rumor or anything like it from anybody else and realized he'd been bullshitting me. And now it's decades later still, and modern memeplectic technology is a hundred billion times more advanced than it was back then, and I built 30% of it, and I look at what the Antimimetics Coalition handles on a quarterly basis, and I know better than anybody on the face of this earth what is or is not possible, and he trails off. They're all waiting, expectantly, for him to say something. He can't get there. He's in the wrong frame of mind. Maybe he's in denial. Maybe this solution is an idea he doesn't want to take on board. How ironic. What, what did I say? Just tell me. Your team suggested that just because SCP-3125 is the most powerful memeplectic threat ever observed, doesn't mean it's the top of the hierarchy, 05-8 says. You've suggested that it would be possible to synthesize an idea, an order of magnitude still more powerful than SCP-3125, specifically designed to neutralize SCP-3125 and under our control, a counter-meme. That would take... That could be possible, Hughes hazards. It would be insanely dangerous. It would require tremendous resources and 10 to 20 years of real-time work completely uninterrupted. To avoid observation, we'd need to be hermetically sealed away from the exterior universe for that entire time. We'd need a lab as big as a launch arcology. Wait a second. His brain has just caught up. He realizes the context in which he's saying these things, and he's been working for the Foundation for a long time. It's done, he says. The lab, it's been built. It was built decades ago in secret, and we put our best researchers inside it, and now the work is done. That's what we're meeting for now. We're ready to go. We're figuring out how to deploy the counter meme. That's brilliant. If I'm right, that's brilliant. Am I right? Bart, Wheeler says. When you joined the Foundation, you were taught that a day would come when you would have to, with very little preparation... Sacrifice much or all of your existence to protect what most needs protecting. You've worked here for 30 years, and all of that time, you knew that that sacrifice would be in your future someday. We were all taught the same thing. It feels to Hughes as if a shadow falls over him. He looks at Michael Lee, his director, who hasn't spoken yet. Lee says, You're right that the lab is built. 
Construction was completed in the last 48 hours. The construction crew have been amnesticized and dismissed, but the work hasn't begun yet. That's what today is about. Hughes says, That's where my people are. That's where your people are, Lee says. They're in the bunker, waiting. We have your cover story prepped. We're faking your death. It's time. You're going under now. Now? No, I I doubt that. Your team volunteered. I took care of them myself. They're good people, Lee says. Like hell, Hughes says. Did I volunteer for this? Wheeler says, Bart. Hughes says, any prior version of me who agreed to this was a goddamn moron, and I disavow his opinions. This is a prison sentence. I don't want to spend 20 years not able to see the sun. I don't want to be buried alive and work. I have... He trails off and stares through the table, eyes defocused. He was about to say, I have family. But he doesn't. There's still his sister. She's foundation like him. But he can't talk to her, and she can't talk to him. They've tried. He tries another tack. This has a low probability of success. The time frames are bad. It's 2008. SCP-3125 will be here by the end of the 2010s. It has an excellent probability of success, Graves says. Define excellent, Hughes says. Better than 50%, if it's you. Graves produces a thick report that presumably backs him up. Hughes peers at the document. He can see his own name on the cover. God damn it. 50% is good. If he were anybody else in this room, he'd seize the chance with both hands. Graves goes on. You convinced us that this had to be done and that you had to be at the center. You were prepared to make the sacrifice. He opens the document to a page in the back. The eyeball of his germ roves the page rapidly and finds the passage he wants. Allow me to quote your own words to you. SCP-3125 represents an omniversal scale threat. It threatens neighboring realities to ours. It threatens microverses within our macroverse. It threatens universes that embed ours as fiction. Go ahead and think of it as a prison sentence, if it helps, 05-8 interrupts. Rescind your consent if you'd like, but the next place you're going after this is the bunker. Hughes glances around the room's walls again. He makes it too obvious what he's thinking. The door's locked, Dr. Hughes, 05-8 says. You're not exiting until we're through here. What's the cover story? Hughes asks. How are you planning to do it? A helium gas leak in S167B03312, Graves explains. The leak will be real, impossible to distinguish from a real one. We've tampered with your public schedule for the day. It puts you in that room, not this one. As for, he's stalling, 05-8 says to Graves and the others. He doesn't need to know any of this. Name somebody else, Lee suggests. Being serious. Who in the world other than you stands a credible chance of solving this problem? Who could we send instead? There's nobody, really, nobody in the world, and he can do it. Lee presses. Is there anybody else? Even if they didn't want to, who has the skills we need who isn't already in the vault? The world shifts positions a little. Lee's standing now. Wheeler looks around alertly, gripping the arm of her chair. She has a fountain pen in her fist, uncapped. It's like she just remembered something. 
05-8 glances at Wheeler, puzzled at her reaction to apparently nothing. Hughes doesn't notice anything. It's just me, Hughes says. It's just you, Lee says. That's good enough for me. Hold on a second, Wheeler says. Lee pulls a gun out of nowhere. Hughes's germ's enormous pupils shrink to violet pinpricks. This is no part of any plan. Everybody in the room knows it. It's a real gun. It's impossible that he could have it. Wheeler starts to rise out of her own chair. Her own sidearm is locked in a box outside. Lee aims at Bart Hughes's chest and fires twice. The first round pierces him in the lung. The second round, fired as Hughes collapses, nicks his laptop screen, which is bulletproof, and ricochets up into the meeting room wall. Lee turns, now aiming at 05-8. He gets two more rounds off, each causing an ear-splitting electronic shriek and a flash of luminous green light as 05-8's protective ward absorbs the energy. Wheeler lunges at Lee from behind his gun arm, deflecting it upwards with one hand while plunging the fountain pen into his throat with the other. Lee struggles. Wheeler pulls hard, opening his throat all the way up. Lee's fingers loosen and she spirits the gun away. Lee gurgles in agony and stumbles backwards, clutching futilely at his wound. He smashes his head, well, the germ he's wearing on his head, against a glass meeting room door and slides down it into a spreading red lake. He's neutralized. There are two seconds in which nothing happens. 05-8's eyes meet Wheeler's. Your thoughts? He asks, urgently. Michael Lee was compromised. I don't know how, Wheeler says. She makes the gun safe, holsters it, and vaults over the table to check on Hughes. He's dead, she finds. Graves is dead, too. When in the hell did Graves get hit? What just happened in this room? This whole site could be compromised from top to bottom. I have follow-up questions, 05-8 begins. A bolt of lethally intense heat and light interrupts him, scorching the wall behind his head. He ducks. Wheeler turns to track the source, aiming the gun with bloody hands. Something is lasering its way in through the containment unit airlock. It's a powerful laser, wielded with robotic precision. It's happening almost too fast to see. My personal security, 05-8 says. It heard the shots. Call it off, Wheeler says. If this unit is breached, SCP-3125 is coming for all of us. The unit's hermetically sealed. I can't send any kind of signal until the doors open. That's a problem. The airlock splits and is torn away in segments. An enormous, gloss-black, armored mechanoid looms in the gap, crouched to peer into the room. It looks exactly as if 05-8's limousine got up and started walking. It's still impossible to guess whether there could be a human pilot inside it. Behind it, in the distance, Bachner is immobilized, sealed to one of the staging area chairs with a sizable glob of transparent orange glue. She screams, help. For Wheeler, it feels as if a black wave rolls over her, pouring into the containment unit from outside. She drops the gun and raises her hands. Being found holding the smoking gun isn't likely to be a good look, and she doesn't know for sure what heuristics, human or electronic or otherwise, control the mechanoid. It could be prone to making bad decisions. Stand down, 05-8 says to his bodyguard. It stops moving, but its single laser doesn't, flickering as fast as the eye can follow between four motionless targets, Wheeler, Hughes, Graves, and Lee. It's waiting for movement. 
Lee, not completely dead, twitches. The laser pulses once in retaliation, atomizing his head and germ. The laser settles down to a shorter pattern, looping between the three remaining targets. Wheeler doesn't move a millimeter. I said stand down. This time, it seems to hear him. The laser clicks off and settles into a neutral position. Wheeler relaxes. Lee was compromised, she says again. She hurries to the back of the room where a medical kit is mounted on the wall. We need to get you out of here, then we need to sterilize the site. Compromised when, 05-8 asks. By whom? I was given to understand that SCP-3125 rendered its victims wholly bodily subordinate to it, biologically incapable of doing anything but propagate its core concepts. But Lee was still high-functioning. We've miscalculated something, Wheeler says. She throws most of the kit aside, keeping only a strangely shaped capsule with a thin nozzle and pink fluid inside. And the gun? We were all searched on entry. I don't know. Wheeler can think of several ways to get the gun into a room undetected. It could have been planted in the restroom by Lee on a prior visit. Bachner could be complicit, perhaps others. She thinks there's an extremely strong chance that the three members of Hughes' team have been murdered too. It's all academic now. She applies the capsule to her right wrist and infuses the first half of the dose. It's fast-acting chemical amnestic. She hopes that splitting one dose between the two of them will be enough. Isn't this the part where SCP-3125 makes an appearance? 05-8 suggests. I certainly feel something in my head. My germ, I should say. Me too. Roll up your sleeve. You also need to deactivate your shield for a second. He obliges, and Wheeler gives him the rest of the drug. Wheeler sorely wishes the shields were standard issue, but they are exceptionally hard to come by and there are serious controversies and side effects associated with them. Outside, Bachner has been gurgling and starting to speak in tongues. Now, she screams again. When Wheeler looks, something long and dark, sharp as a javelin and bifurcating into filaments, descends from somewhere in the ceiling of the warehouse. It curls around the chair Bachner is glued to and lifts her up into the air. A second, thin feeler makes an appearance. It probes Bachner's glue-covered midsection curiously and then pushes itself through her like a pin through paper. She wails, liters of blood gushing out and splashing to the floor below her. The feeler withdraws, then makes a second hole beside the first and continues in that fashion. More spider legs impale 05-8's mechanoid bodyguard and pull it away from the airlock, rapidly dissecting it into sparking pieces. The laser flashes wildly as the machine dies. It's no use. In the distance, a site-wide containment alarm starts up. It's a mimetic threat, 05-8 says, mostly to himself. Where do the arachnoforms come in? Do you have alternate transportation, Wheeler asks? S-167-B02-101. There's an escape pod, 05-8 says. As he says it, Wheeler writes it down on her hand with her bloodied fountain pen. Underground? You sure? Is there a code for the door? 05-8 lists five digits. He clutches his head. His germ is twitching unhappily and changing color and texture as if an infection is spreading across its pale blue skin. I can feel it. It's like steel jaws. This is most unpleasant. We need to get to the escape pod, Wheeler says. There's nothing else that matters. We don't need to remember why. Got it? 
Spider legs reach into the airlock and begin tearing the room to pieces. They're fast moving and grabby and angry. They know there's something important inside, but they can't get to it. The skull bone is too strong to be broken apart. 05-8 doesn't have much field experience. The amnestic is blurring his thoughts. I'm deferring to you, he says dozily. Escape pod, lead on. Wheeler takes his hand. She's got Lee's gun in the other, a decent amount of ammunition left. With me, she says. She's done this before. She doesn't know it. The warehouse ceiling starts to cave in. But what is it? Where is it? What does SCP-3125 look like? Its motivation, its origins, its modus operandi. How much of that can be known? Does it have to be known to solve the problem? Does it matter how intelligent the intelligence is once it's inside the box? Once it's checkmated? In what actinic, mind-wrenching form could the counter-meme take? How could human hands assemble something so devastatingly powerful and hold it steady? What human mind could wield it without exploding from the inside out? What would deploying that concept in anger do to human ideatic space? How far out from the solution is modern memetic science? A year? A century? What insane impossibility has Hughes just committed himself to? He doesn't know anything. He knows Site-167 is coming apart, and something violent and psychotic is flooding its corridors and its people. A living, roving swarm that makes every human into the worst possible thing a human can be. A thing that stands wrong, that looks wrong, colorless, and furious. He races down the corridors, and then down ventilation shafts that'll take him deeper. He's small, and he has quick, slippery locomotion. He can make it. He can lock himself in. He doesn't know what a germ needs to survive. All he's seen is the cages. He doesn't know Bachner's care routine. Does it live in water? In C. Gigante's blood plasma? Is it fed a formula? He needs to reverse engineer his own biology before he starves. He doesn't know the model of his mind. It hurts to think. But he can think. There's no day-night cycle. Something like a week into his trek, Wheeler realizes that he can perform an experiment. He selects a building with a high ceiling to sleep in, a library. Before turning in, he sets up a Foucault pendulum. He suspends a heavy rock by wire from the ceiling and sets it swinging. The following morning, the slow pendulum is still swinging, and it is precessed. It's swinging at about a right angle from the mark he made before he went to sleep. That means the world is still spinning. On reflection, he doesn't know if it proves anything. It's not clear whether the sun or the moon still exist, or any celestial object at all other than the red-black eye socket at the horizon. The eye never moves. It casts long, threatening shadows while being bright enough to blind Wheeler whenever he has to walk in that approximate direction, which is about half the time. Regardless of the physical evidence, it doesn't feel as if he's walking on a real earth or fully awake. He feels like an ant, crawling across the face of a rough-hewn monolith, crawling into and out of the runes chiseled into the face of that monolith, 
runes that form an unstoppable apocalyptic mythology. He has migraines, and there are blotchy, multicolored zigzags in his vision by the end of most days. He feels as if the whole world is perpetually dropping away from beneath his feet, like he and it are both plummeting into an abyss. He has not been caught yet. The violent phenomena Ulrich warned him about have not appeared, which makes him feel increasingly lucky and nervous. He carries a looted gun that he's practiced with a little. He's a better shot than he would have guessed, using his right hand alone. His left hand, the mangled one, does nothing but shake. He has to keep it clutched to his chest when shooting. The gun gives him less reassurance than he'd like. It feels as if, were he to end up in a situation, it could metamorphose suddenly from a working firearm into a fiddly metallic liability, an explosive distraction in his pocket. On occasion, on the horizon, he sees a skyscraper-sized figure stalking past. He holds still, or hides, and it doesn't see him. Other than that, the world is seemingly deserted, standing empty, like an overturned car in a muddy ditch, open doors, lights still blinking. Wheeler feels detached, lucky, guilty. He keeps away from cities. He has not, yet, come within eyeshot of a sarcophagus. Ulrich was evasive in describing them and advised him in the strongest possible terms to stay away from them. But on another night, he selects a bad place to camp, where the wind and the local geography funnel the noise from one of the sarcophagi up to him from the valley. The noise, despite its faintness and distance, cultivates such intense and intolerable nightmares that he has to get up, pack up again, and walk further away, as many more miles as it takes. The noise creates in him things that he dearly does not want to be flashbacks. He goes into a shop and, along with packaged food and bottled water, steals a cheap digital wristwatch. It has a date function. Today is Monday the 17th of April. It's just gone lunchtime. Time is still passing. On some level, all of this is factual. It's happening. And if it's really happening, then what? There's no longer any ambiguity about what specifically is happening, not in Wheeler's mind or in anyone's. The world has long since passed through SCP-3125's antimimetic boundary layer and into its radioactive core. There's no longer a need for SCP-3125 to pretend that it is not what it plainly is. What else could it be? What difference could it make now? What could oppose it? It stands there in plain sight. Wheeler sees it. All of conscious reality sees it. It's happening everywhere to everyone. It's not physically possible to conceive of anything else. There is no worst case scenario than what's happening now. There's no race against time. There's no ticking clock. There's no last second. The last second was years ago. There's nothing to avert. This is it. The final game position. The highest and most refined form of human civilization. This is the shape of the next million years. SCP-3125 stands there, monstrous, casual, and indifferent. And Wheeler is alone with his thoughts for a long period of time and has little else to think about, and he wrinkles his brow and blinks a long blink and looks again. 
and he realizes what it was that he wasn't seeing. SCP-3125 is standing there like a human stands. He reaches Site-41 at the beginning of May. His body clock has wandered far out of skew by this point. It's technically around midnight when he first lays eyes on the place. There's a protective field surrounding it, stamped into reality by the detonation of the antimimetic warhead, radiating out a few hundred meters beyond the site's perimeter. It's a psychological repulsion, not a physical one. A thick bulwark of irrelevance. There's nothing here, just keep walking. Despite being warned about it, Wheeler succumbs to the effect. Thirty minutes walk down the road, he double-checks his map and realizes what's happened and turns back. This happens a second time. On the third attempt, he makes it through, dead reckoning and willpower. For some reason, he had been imagining an ancient, dramatically overgrown ruin, but the containment breach that led to the site's destruction happened only 18 months ago, and the bomb blast that concluded the outbreak was figurative, not physical. About a third of Site-41's main building has been torn down, but the rest is perfectly intact and unmarred. Mother Nature has not reclaimed it, Gnarled trees are not sprouting from the damaged side. Wheeler exhales. There is a still, safe atmosphere about the place. It's as if Site-41 has its own cool microclimate. It's easier to think. Even the light here is fractionally yellower, more natural. The site's main entrance is sealed with steel doors, but Wheeler circles around to the damaged side of the building and is able to effect entry over the rubble. He moves at a medium-slow pace. He can't afford to blunder into anything, but if he goes too slowly, he knows he'll overthink the situation and become scared and have to retreat all the way out of the building. The late Daisy Ulrich promised him that the site was safe. She then went to rather disconcerting lengths to explain precisely what safe meant. No entities capable of spontaneously, actively harming a person— no entities in need of active, dynamic containment procedures. A safe SCP can be left in a dark, locked room indefinitely, with no risk, she explained. The site is safe, he tells himself, creeping forward. The most dangerous things he's going to find are rats, and he jumps back, aiming his flashlight at a frightening shape. Corpses. The corpse is seated against a corridor wall. It's clutching a combat knife that it seems to have buried up to the hilt in its own inner thigh, opening a gushing artery. Wheeler backs up against a wall, unable to look closely at the body, but equally unable to let it out of his eyesight in case it does something. He feels faint. It doesn't help that at exactly that moment the fluorescent lights in the corridor come on, triggered by his movement, giving him a much better look at the scene. The scene is about as bloody as any suicide can be. No thank you, he says. He backs up. He backs all the way up the corridor and through the ruin to the virulent red place that passes for daylight, and there he throws up. It takes a long time to talk himself back into it. He finds many more bodies. Some of them are in groups, having died during violent altercations or during more complex scenes that Wheeler cannot fully parse. Some of them are dismembered or just scattered pieces. Some of them appear to have been dead for significantly longer than the rest. They are little more than wafer-thin skin wrapped around skeletons. 
and there are strange things written on the walls beside them. Wheeler never works out why. There's still power. There's running water. At first, nearly every door he meets is locked, but he steals his nerves and returns to each of the dead foundationers in turn and retrieves their keys and security passes. Soon, he has the run of the place, with only a few highly secure rooms and containment units denied to him. At this point, his task has become open-ended. If Hughes is not somewhere on Site 41, which he almost certainly isn't, Wheeler needs to find information leading to his true location. He needs data. He collects devices, phones and laptops, and computer terminals, foundation built with chunky form factors. Most of them need passwords or pins that he can't get, but a few can be unlocked using security passes or biometrics that he can get if he carries the device back to the relevant corpse and presents their face or finger to the scanner. The devices still have power, too. Wheeler is unable to find anything resembling a battery readout on any of them. He is slowly learning a key lesson. The Foundation builds things to endure. And though the Foundation, as a group of people, is absent, the physical systems they built are still here, and functioning, and ready. The SCP database is the most obvious icon on every device's home screen. Ulrich told him to look out for a particular sigil, concentric circles with three inward-pointing arrows. Inevitably, like an uncounted number of newcomer foundationers before him, Wheeler loses a significant number of hours browsing the entries. The foundation has a specific and recognizable house style, which is to describe even the most mind-bogglingly weird anomalies in absolutely mundane factual terms. Even heavily redacted, different users see different amounts of redaction, but there is plenty of data that he can't access no matter whose identity he uses. It makes for bizarrely compelling reading. Hughes is mentioned numerous times in the database. He seems to have multiple overlapping research specialties and is credited in many entries as a containment architect. Wheeler takes detailed notes, assembling a picture of the man's career progression, and then randomly stumbles into the Foundation's own personal records for Hughes, which line up almost exactly with what he just worked out. There are huge holes in the personnel record. The last entry relating to Hughes's actual activities is in 2007, and then in 2010, after a gap of years, there's a final note, a single, unauthored sentence. It appears that those who know Hughes's fate meet it. Wheeler frowns at the unhelpful note for a long minute. It reads like a riddle. Wheeler was, for a long time, a crossword puzzle fiend, but it seems improbable to him that a clandestine organization like the Foundation would leave cryptic clues for one another, rather than clear, direct instructions. Which means the note is probably intended to be read simply and literally. Don't look for Hughes unless you want to meet the same fate. Wheeler tilts his chair back and stares at the ceiling, contemplatively. On the other hand, the note also means, Hughes can be found. It's been done before. There's no day-night cycle, but he's worn out. His body is telling him that he needs to sleep. He sleeps on a sofa in an employee break room on the far side of the building from the red eye. 
There's a snack machine, and there are snacks in the machine, but he doesn't have any cash. He considers breaking the glass, but if he screws it up and cuts himself badly, there isn't a single doctor left in the whole world who could stitch him up. He considers and rules out looting the nearest corpse for a dollar. As he tries to sleep, something comes to him, an acute, anxious energy. It grips him by the shoulder. Get up, it screams at him distantly. You cannot rest. Do the arithmetic. It's all still happening. Move. He rolls over and ignores it. And it bothers him, intellectually, that he can ignore it. He wonders if there's some vital organ missing from his body. He should be quivering with anger and terror right now, yes? Why, in his heart, is he so calm? He looks at SCP-3125, whose very existence, on paper, should paralyze him with fear. He looks at what SCP-3125 is doing, which should fill every fiber of his being with furious purpose. And he looks at his own significance to the whole endeavor, and his own guesstimate of the odds. He does the arithmetic, and the product of all those factors rounds down to damn near zero. This isn't going to work, that's why. This has to stop. It has to end. Please. Curled up in his sleeping bag, eyes screwed shut, Adam Wheeler mutters to whatever may be listening. It isn't going to work. Near the side entrance, he can't figure out how to unlock the steel doors even from this side. He finds a security office with printed floor plans of the whole site. He crosses off the rooms he's visited and the rooms that are destroyed. Everything remaining is locked, above ground anyway. Underground, there are warrens of tunnels and dozens more containment units, and 30 floors below ground, a single, incredibly large vault of unstated purpose. This final vault draws his attention in, magnetically. Ulrich assured him that the site was totally safe. As the freight elevator descends, Wheeler finds that a kind of anxious pressure is building above him. The air is rapidly getting warmer, and he's just realized that if the elevator breaks down right now, he'll likely be helplessly trapped and die. He shouldn't have used it. He should have used the emergency stairs too late. The elevator lands. There's an empty corridor. He follows it, drawn forward. There's an airlock at the far end, a wall of white metal big enough to drive a truck through. The airlock is closed, but there are seven or eight overlapping circular holes punched through it, making a combined gap that's easily big enough to admit a human. Beyond the airlock, there's a vast, dark space. Wheelers climb through the hole and walked five paces out into the darkness before he even thinks about what he's doing. There are shapes out there, illuminated by the scant light falling from the airlock door. Lumps that could be more dead people. Wheeler's own shadow blocks much of the light. He takes out his flashlight. It is absolutely silent down here, and the temperature is uncomfortable, making him sweat. The rest of the huge vault, as far as he can shine his light, is totally empty but his flashlight isn't powerful enough to illuminate a space this big, so it's hard to be certain. He advances. A loud tone is building in his ears as he gets closer. There are, he counts, 14 dead. 13 of them dead in a rough circle around a 14th. 
a woman lying flat on her back. Just outside of the circle, there's a military truck with the inert remains of a complex machine mounted on its back. This, Wheeler surmises, is the antimimetic warhead. There's a cable leading down to a control unit lying on the floor, under the hand of the dead woman. Ah, he says, with a note of regret. So you're the one. Her security pass looks different from the others. It has a bright, diagonal stripe across it in red and orange. He takes it. There's a roaring in his skull. He can't see it clearly at first. Something is disturbing his vision. A gold-white spot in the corner of his eye. An artifact from the combination of extreme darkness and bright flashlight. He squints. It says, Marion Wheeler, Sight Director. He stares at it for a long time, weirdly disoriented. He doesn't exactly know why. It is, of course, a very commonplace name. If he stopped to gawp at every other Wheeler he met, he would never get anything done. Still, she's the one with her hand on the switch. She's the one who ended this local outbreak. Out of every dead foundationer on this damned site, she's the one who didn't die for no reason at all. He feels as if he should say a few words. But they do not come to him. He makes one quick circuit around the vault perimeter scanning the floor and the wall, looking for anything interesting and finding nothing but construction tools and scaffolding. He returns to the airlock and then the freight elevator. He glares at it for a long, frustrated moment and then accepts that it would be unsafe to use it again. The emergency stairwell is perfectly well lit, but 30 floors is a mountain. Three times on the way up, he has to stop to rest his knees. The site director's pass gets him everything. Every control room, every containment unit, every file. He gets the whole story. He puts the last piece in place. He leaves a note following the same hopeless, diligent ritual as the rest of the antimimetics division before him. He emerges from SCP-3125's inverted containment unit with extremely clear written instructions from himself to himself. He knows exactly where he needs to go. As he moves down the forest road away from the site, he reaches and crosses the edge of the antimimetic crater. He squares his shoulders, re-entering the presence of SCP-3125. His inner ear starts free-falling again. Where were you just now? Someone calls out to him. He stops walking. He squints into the intense light ahead of him, shielding his eyes. He can just about make out a figure standing there. The trees on each side of them rustle and move. They're too tall. Spider scrapers. A wave of dread hits Wheeler, followed closely by one of perverse relief. This is it. Why can't I track you? The unidentified man says. His voice sounds faint. You're so weak. It's like you don't exist. I just wasted two days trying to pick you up again. What's wrong with you? Wheeler says nothing. The man is closer. He didn't walk, but the distance between them halves, and his voice is easier to hear, though he's still too bright to look at. His body structure blurs and flickers. You're not one of them, he says, and you're not one of us, and you're definitely not the hero. You don't count for shit memetically. Why are you wasting your time on this? 
Whatever the fuck this is, you should just kill yourself. It's not going to work. Wheeler knows that. The light collapses. The figure smashes into focus, becoming physical. It's a real human. A skinny 20-something, scruffy, uncut hair, and a sketchy beard. He is shirtless, and there's a deep black pit in his clavicle, a hole where he's clearly been very badly wounded. Blood has run down his chest, soaked his jeans and forearms, and dried black. Fresh blood is still coming, building up thick layers, which shouldn't be possible. Wheeler doesn't spot the second hole in his gut, obscured by too much blood. Wheeler is trying to keep his expression neutral, but he knows it isn't working. He can feel his left hand, his bad hand, starting to shake. A part of him still wants to ask the guy why, but there is no possible answer. This is what the human race really is, the man explains, spreading his hands to gesture at the whole world. We lied to ourselves that we could be better for thousands of years, but this is it. This is what we've always been. We've never been anything else. That's Wheeler begins, then stops, suddenly remembering something. He claps his left hand to his chest, draws with his right, and shoots. It's a good shot. It's a lucky shot. It takes the man directly in the eyeball and blows out the back of his skull. He falls, twisting as he falls, landing on his broken face. Wheeler gasps, remembering to breathe. He almost drops his gun. He gets a tighter grip on it keeping it aimed at the blasted ruin of the man's head. He wants to throw up. He controls himself. In through the mouth. Out through the nose. He's okay. Let him talk for too long, he says, apologetically. He pulls out a foundation brick phone from his pack. He pushes some buttons, entering coordinates, and then retreats far down the road. He retains visual contact with the dead man for as long as possible, then turns away and kneels, placing the phone on the road beside him. Following the detailed instructions he found in the control room, he grinds his palms into his eyes and presses his face against the ground, and he says, Aloni, Zenora. Fire. The orbital laser strike comes diagonally. It lasts for a split second and is easily bright enough in the visible spectrum to have instantly blinded him if he were looking. When Wheeler returns to the scene, there's no body left, just a scorched ellipse of asphalt. He says to the scorch mark, I was going to say something along the lines of, that's a lie, that's what you are, you're the lie, but ah. And if the bastard can regenerate from that, I'm done for, well and truly. He looks up, the atmosphere isn't changing, the sky isn't returning to blue. There's still that heinous pressure. SCP-3125 remains the dominant force in the universe. But as he turns, hearing movement in the forest all around him, he realizes that the immense spider forms, he'd sincerely forgotten about them, they were standing there so quietly, are dispersing. All memetic horror aside, Wheeler thought Site-41 seemed like a pleasant enough place to work, at least above ground. Decently spacious, if unattractive, offices, large windows, plenty of natural light, scenic forest views. Safe. Site-167 is a hostile, sprawling, industrial wasteland 
four square kilometers of secure containment warehousing, research laboratories, and administrative offices. Wheeler is put in mind of a fossil fuel power plant. The buildings are grim, functional, and aggressively unattractive. There is no greenery. The ambient noise in the complex is a harsh roaring. It was built on a flat plain, and the wind races down concrete canyons and past sharp building edges. Just over half of the site, Wheeler discovers, has been erased from the face of the earth by an orbital laser strike. There's an edge where the intact buildings and roads abruptly end, and beyond that edge there is nothing but blackened level wreckage. Wheeler guesses that the laser shut down mid-redaction when the site's antimimetic warhead was triggered, but he can't be sure of any exact chain of events. It doesn't matter. It doesn't significantly harm the odds. What he's looking for is below ground. Wheeler is at his limit. He's traveled too far and has been traveling for too long. He cannot exist in SCP-3125's universe for much longer, sane. It's all still happening, and the fragile responsibility of being the only one alive who can do anything to stop it is like a steadily tightening vice around his skull. He's exhausted and slowly losing his vision to bright migraines and dismally lonely. No more detective work. No more sights. This needs to be the end. Between buildings 8 and 22E, there's a vertical access point a 30-meter-wide hexagonal shaft with a yellow gantry crane across its mouth. The shaft was used for lowering construction machinery and materials into the site's extensive underground complex. The shaft is so wide and deep that it has strange effects on the movement of air near its lip. It feels to Wheeler as if it's trying to pull him down. There are metal stairs lining the inner wall of the shaft. He descends and then follows his map into Site-167's underground complex. Unlike Site-41, this was certainly not a safe site. There are warning signs everywhere, many of whose symbols Wheeler cannot immediately parse. Very soon, he begins to encounter heavy bulkheads sealed with electronic locks. Marion Wheeler's security pass opens them every time. Containment Unit S-167-006183's airlock is identical to the one he encountered at Site-41, just as the architectural diagram suggested. The only difference is that this airlock is still visibly airtight. No holes. Wheeler swipes his card through the reader with a shaking hand. The door cycles open, revealing a sterile white antechamber, stale atmosphered after years of disuse. He stands in the middle waiting for the second half of the cycle. This is it. His heart is pounding. It's not good for him. He doesn't have a heart condition that he knows of, but how would he know? Every living cardiologist is in hell. He asks himself the final worrying question for the final time. But if you're here, Dr. Hughes, and you've built the machine and the machine works, why didn't you come out? He answers himself as a kind of inoculation against the bad news he knows is coming. Because the machine doesn't work. Because you couldn't build it. Because you're dead. The inner door cycles open. The atmosphere in the vault is tropically humid and thick enough to taste. 
It tastes unpleasantly organic, like lymph or some other obscure bodily fluid. There are overhead floodlights, of which perhaps one in ten are still shining. There's junk everywhere. To Wheeler's left, there's a rough semicircle of monolithic auto-factory units, each six or more meters tall, with piles of fabricated junk around them. Furniture, tools, food containers, hard foam bricks, circuit boards, spools of fabric. To his right, stacked, stretching away along the long concave wall of the vault, are hundreds of empty shipping containers. He would have to walk for ten minutes before he found one still containing raw materials. Ahead of him is a three-meter-tall wall of steel that curves away to the left and right, enclosing almost all of the vault's floor space. Just visible over the top of the wall, heaving slowly under the weak yellow light, is an immense sleeping organism. From here, Wheeler can only see the curve of its back, which is a glossy, moist black mottled with green. It is round, almost spherical, like an ice cream scoop of liver taken from a human two kilometers tall and dumped into this enormous… Wheeler gulps as he makes the association. Petri dish. Wheeler does not notice the meter-thick pipes that run from the auto factories over the edge of the dish and in, providing various necessary liquids. He does spot the tall towers arranged around the organism, spraying a translucent mist down at it from all angles. Suspended from the ceiling to the left and right, roaring continually, are ventilation units as large as houses. There is no one around. Wheeler clears his throat and addresses the room as loudly as he dares. Is there a Dr. Bartholomew Hughes in here? Nothing happens. The roaring of the ventilation units continues. The organism continues to heave slowly. Wheeler raises his voice somewhat. I'm looking for a machine called an... It wakes up. Irreality amplifier? The thing turns, pushing huge volumes of fluid around its dish, enough that a wave of it sloshes viciously over the side of the wall. It lurches up to the wall. As more of it becomes visible, it becomes clear that there is little more to its body plan than what was already visible. Aside from stubby flippers, it is simply a huge, near-spherical lump of biology. It seems to peer eyelessly at Wheeler. Wheeler concludes that he does not wish to be here. He turns to leave and is startled to discover that the airlock door has closed behind him as silently as it opened. Ah. The airlock controls are to one side. He does not run for fear of attracting attention with sudden movement, but he walks over briskly and pulls out his stolen security card again. As he's about to swipe it through the reader, a stringy red web lashes out from nowhere and restrains his wrist, preventing him from proceeding. Wheeler struggles for a second to pull his arm free, but the webbing is gluey and has a freakish rigidity to it, as if there are bones inside it. It won't let him move. He glances back and doesn't get a good enough look at the organism's body to spot where the web originated. The organism has opened its eye now, a single eyeball, tens of meters wide, that must account for a significant fraction of its body volume. It has a vivid pink iris and four enormous black pupils. Its voice isn't truly audible, 
It arrives in Wheeler's head like a maddening static, a mosquito's whine in stereo. Do you have it? Have what? No doctor, no machine. A thinner strand of webbing shoots out, attaching itself to the security pass in Wheeler's hand, plucking it delicately from his fingers. The strand withdraws and holds the pass in front of the organism's eye. Wheeler. Ah, Wheeler says. Yes, it's something of a coincidence, actually. The strand tightens, lifting Wheeler by his arm. He twirls, uselessly, barely able to see what's happening. There's a blur of luminous pink, and he is plunged, screaming, directly into the largest of Bart Hughes' four pupils. The bunker was empty when he got there. His associates were missing. He was forced to presume them dead, and, in a rare lapse of forethought, he had neglected to bite off one of his human body's fingers before fleeing the scene of the shooting. With no human tissue sample to work from, he had no way to clone himself a replacement body. He was, he realized, trapped. Wheeler had told him that, to protect the cause of the Foundation, he would have to sacrifice much or all of his existence, and she had only been reminding him of something that he had always known intellectually. Still, he had not imagined this. And even if he had, he could never have imagined what this would be like to experience from the inside. Several times, he came close to quitting. Dysmorphia alone almost killed him. But he had a duty. The problem had to be solved. He attacked it in his germ form for over a year. He developed tools for himself, computer peripherals and writing implements adapted for his short but dexterous tendrils. He built miniature chair analogs and other furniture. He developed for himself a little life. A fitness plan, some hobbies even. He slept in baths of nutrient sludge. Before the end of the first month, he had proven to his satisfaction that the counter-meme he was searching for existed beyond the comprehension of human intellect. A human being's mind would figuratively burst into flame upon contact with it. It was quite possible that their literal body would, too as a violent reaction to the profound, unalterable wrongness of every aspect of the universe around it. To create the counter-meme, he would need to start from a human carrier of a suitable single-celled base idea and amplify that idea artificially using a machine. By the second year, he had designed and built enough of the machine to know that the machine could not be built. Theory and practice were diverging too far. Tests were failing in troubling ways which pointed to fundamental architectural misconceptions. His machine would not and could not do what it was designed to do. He scrapped all of his schematics. He needed a different approach. There's a struggling figure mounted on the back of his retina, drowning beneath yellow pinpricks of focused light, drawing oxygen from his bloodstream and firing back minuscule thoughts. The figure is losing his mind with fear and revulsion, though he's a little more resilient than he gives himself credit for, and he's adapting. It's you, the little man manages to gurgle. There's no amplifier. You're the amplifier. He sequenced and then reverse-engineered his own genetic code. He built life support equipment and re-architected the interior of the vault, which had always been the plan, if not to this extent. 
He refactored his physiology in stages over the course of years until his brain was of a size and complexity to think monumental, radical, irreducibly complex thoughts. But why didn't you? The speck asks. You could have opened the vault at any time. What were you waiting for? Once, while exploring human ideatic space, he saw himself. He created a rudimentary mimetic descriptor of himself, refined it, focused, guessed a little, and there he was. A complex of brilliant lights in the shape of a man, amid a swarm of similar people, living and dead, and real and fictional. It was fascinating and sobering to see himself in that grand context from that elevated perspective. He was tiny. He waved. He waved back. And when he saw himself, he came to understand what he was, what his role was. He was the mad technical genius, the crazed inventor who architects the final weapon. But he was not the one to wield it. The spark, the base idea he needed to amplify, was not in his head and was not in the vault with him. Mathematically, it never could have been. That was not the shape of things. It had to be delivered by someone else. The speck stopped struggling. He has looked with some effort to his left and his right. He has now, finally, seen that there are other figures mounted here with him on the retina, older figures who have mostly been interpolated into the membrane and no longer have independent life or thought. This causes him no small amount of alarm. He says, By who? Hold still. The speck's brain explodes like a diagram. There is a forest. There's a nice big house in the forest and a garden behind the house, a trimmed lawn encircled by tall conifers. There's a rough circle of chairs on the lawn and about 25 people seated or standing around or chatting in groups with drinks and burgers, and there's a line for the barbecue. There's a tall column of smoke rising from the barbecue. It's an outstandingly beautiful day, and nothing terrible is happening at all. Adam Wheeler knows he's broken now because he can't accept the scene. It's too sudden and too pleasant to be real. He feels normal, clean, and healthy. He gasps and almost cries when he realizes that his hand is back. Someone walks up to him, offering a handshake. You must be Adam. It's a pleasure. Bart Hughes. Hughes is a very youthful 50, short and skinny, with thick-lensed, thick-rimmed glasses and a flurry of wild graying hair. Wheeler shakes his hand more or less automatically. In his other, he has a bottle of beer. I work at the foundation, he says, obviously. Containment architecture, biomimetics, a whole mess of odd jobs. Hughes, Wheeler repeats. I was, um, looking for you. You found me, Hughes says. Good job. What is this? I didn't think you'd remember. This is where we met. Originally, I mean, briefly. We shared about ten words maximum, and... I don't remember a single one of those words, and I barely remember you either, no offense. But I remember the barbecue, and I definitely remember that I met you at the barbecue. So, 
I figured it would be a more agreeable setting for the conversation we need to have. Wheeler doesn't recognize the scene, either the location or any of the people. This is your memory? Yeah, come on, let's talk. Hughes leads Wheeler across the lawn and selects a pair of chairs in the sun. He sits and gestures for Wheeler to sit across from him. Wheeler does so uneasily. Hughes rests his elbows on his knees and gathers his thoughts before he begins speaking. Adam, you don't have the idea we're looking for, the seed for the counter meme. You're the wrong guy. You would know if you had it. It would be impossible not to know. You would feel electrified by it, driven forward by the high ideal it represented every waking moment. It's what should have brought you here. I don't know how you made it here without it. I didn't know I was supposed to bring an idea with me. There's no way you could have known, Hughes reassures him. Nobody exterior to the vault knew. I didn't know it myself until I was already locked in. This is normal. We form these plans and something unexpected happens and the plans go out the window. And under great pressure, we're forced to demonstrate creativity. Wheeler takes a deep breath. He squares his shoulders. All right, where is it? I hope it's in North America. I don't want to have to go all the way back to Site 41, but I will, if you can wait that long. Hughes is shaking his head. You can't do it. Even if it was that simple and there was just a place I could send you to collect it, like takeout, you can't carry an idea like this. You've never had that capability. You don't believe. You've never had to. You're the wrong guy. So where does that leave us? Hughes turns, looking meaningfully toward the barbecue itself. Wheeler follows his gaze. There's a woman tending to it, with her back to them, chatting with the people in line for food. She seems to be the center of attention. Marion, Wheeler says. She had it, Hughes says. Well, to speak accurately, there's no singular it. It's a massively diverse phase space of possibilities. Millions of people in the world had different ideas that could have worked, but she was one of them. Was, Wheeler says. Yeah, she died. Hughes turns back to face him. He hesitates, drinking some more beer while he chooses his words. He's not a medical doctor. He doesn't have anything that could be considered a bedside manner. Adam, he says, I've been examining your brain. There are layers and layers of damage there, and a lot of it looks deliberate. Some of it may have even been self-inflicted. You've had memories suppressed and restored and falsified and erased again, and on top of that, you survived what should have been fatal exposure to SCP-3125, and you've been through a great deal of completely non-anomalous trauma. So, you would be forgiven for not having worked it out by now. The hole in your life. No, I know, Wheeler says. With some caution, Hughes asks, What do you know? She and I were married at one point, right? Hughes slowly nods. Wheeler says, I got there eventually. It felt stupid and obsessive at first to draw that conclusion. Self-absorbed, but there were all these facts and they all fit. At the end of the day, I had to accept it. Hughes asks, and 
How do you feel about that? Wheeler interlocks his fingers distractedly. He doesn't know. He doesn't know if he wants to know. He's afraid to know. So what if we were married? What does that give me? It's over. It's all gone. Could be, Hughes says. What was she like? Hughes holds something out to him. It's an auto-injector pen. A stubby, luminous orange cylinder with a pointed cap concealing a needle. There's a fat, black Z printed on its side. Wheeler recognizes it. In fact, he recognizes it as his own. But he finds himself not able to recall where he acquired it, or for how long he's been carrying it. This drug, he knows, will kill him. It will make him remember everything. Everything. And this will kill him, as it does everybody. But he will remember. There's a kind of singing in his ears. The sunlight in the garden is blurring, smearing out. He catches Hughes' eye, and Hughes is smiling, ruefully. And his eye is lit up, a scintillating gold-white point of light. This needs to be the end. There are long, long months of fearful migraine wandering. There's the face-to-face back in the school, mediated by the late Daisy Ulrich, so brief and extraordinarily painful that it registers like a gunshot. And then he's enmeshed within SCP-3125 again, complicit and actively engaged in a darkened, metallic hell. The drug makes it impossible to not think about what happened to not stare directly at what he did. Time in there is dilated, stretched to subjective breaking point by the anomaly's mass. It seems to last tens of years, and then the chisel. And after that, for two years, he's vacant. He's a suit wrapped around a torn, ragged-edged hole. And then there is Marion, at last, placidly tearing herself out of his life and him out of hers. And then... It's hours earlier than that, the very worst moment, his awful, sinking realization that she no longer knows who he is. And then, it's two days before that. It's 6.15 in the morning, October, pre-dawn and freezing cold. Marion is at her car door, about to leave for work, but distracted by something important on her work phone, and Adam is lingering on the porch, seeing her off. He has a work trip of his own tonight and tomorrow night, so this is the last time they'll see each other until... This is the last time they'll see each other. This is it. He digs his heels in, dragging the regression to a straining halt. He calls out. Marion. She puts her phone away. She turns around. It's her. The whole of her. She is precisely the way he remembers her. She is the memory. Iconic and brilliant. She smiles at him for a long, ridiculous moment. She says, Do you get it now? Why you kept me away from all this? Yes. He goes to her, and they kiss. And it's a classic. It's perfect. It's everything either of them remembers. He holds her tightly, and she hugs him back. Head hides as mismatched as ever. He sniffs. You've had a hell of a time, she states. It is a simple fact. I needed you, he says. 
I didn't even know how badly. I didn't need you to help me. I just needed to stand aside and let you do the job instead. Marion, your job is lunacy. I 100% understand why you tried to keep me out of this half of your life for so long, and I will never ask about it again. She looks up at him. It looks like she's about to say something, but the pain in Adam's brain makes itself known again, and he has to break off. The pain is forcing its way forward into the back of his eyes. The rate of regression is increasing again. Different memories from all parts of his life are clamoring at him now, and their combined volume is increasing, and it is becoming difficult to think clearly. Marion, though, is part of most of the memories, not a constant. She's evolved and grown over years, but a common thread. He focuses on her. I don't have a lot of time to bring you up to speed, he manages. This isn't real. We're both sharing Bart Hughes's mind right now. I don't know how much you know. There's an anti-memetic monster called SCP-3125, she says. It killed me and the Division and the Foundation, and now it's occupying our whole reality. It ruins humans. It's the worst thing that's ever existed. There's no one left but you, and you can't stop it. You can't even look at it. Hughes needs an idea to amplify, so you took a lethal dose of biochemical nestic to reify me properly, because I was the best idea you had. Does that cover it? Adam grins weakly, with great relief. His wife has caught up characteristically quickly. Just about. We live in ridiculous times. She steps back from him. She looks at him and at herself, and at their fictional little scene, steadily brightening as the sun rises. She looks up at the unimaginably gigantic memeplex that she has to kill. Inside its maw, human existence, all humans, and all things humans have ever done, said, thought, or been, are burning alive. SCP-3125 is, in large part, the lie that SCP-3125 is inevitable and indestructible. But it is a lie. She feels it now. She knows in her bones that she is a real, an animate memory, an ideal, an abstract. When she started to exist a few moments ago, she was mostly realistic, but she can feel flaws and complexity being stripped away from her. She can see the shape of the idea complex that Hughes is assembling around her. It looks familiar. It looks like a heavily reworked slice through the concept of the Foundation itself. The Foundation's noblest intentions and achievements at least. The best purpose of its existence. To protect people. To swallow up all the horror. To manage it and understand it. To keep it under lock and key so that people don't have to be afraid. Adam, she says, looking up again. It's going to work. I can see all the way to the end from here. That's good, he manages. It's been a long time since I had good news. He falls to his knees. His skull feels as if it's splitting open. She kneels with him, taking one of his hands. He is seeing things, and the things he is being forced to see are hurting him. SCP-3125 has been hacking away at his and her lives for far longer than he knew. They lost so much by the end, he had no idea. And it's not just him, he realizes. It's everybody. He needs to multiply this feeling by billions. You've got to end this thing, he says, the pain rising to a flashpoint. 
It has to be today. No more. Adam, listen. It's a different kind of existence up there. I've seen glimpses of it before, but I've never been there. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know I won't be a human anymore. I'm already not real. I won't be able to come back. I love you. There's a burning, corrosive sensation crawling across the surface of Adam's brain. A crackle, like cellular automata. I know, he says. It's okay. There's going to be no one to come back to. It was good to see you. I love you. Stand back. She stands back from him. She flexes what could be wings. You used to sing, Adam says, all the time. It's the first thing it took away from us, but I remember. The launch window opens. There is a kind of ignition, and Marion Wheeler's perspective shifts, and everything seems to shrink, and she is on the ascent. The part of SCP-3125 that was capable of communication has had its brains blown out. There's no longer anything to reason with. There is no quip. There is a song, but it's a song she sings for herself. The thing is titanic in its structure, brain-breaking in its topology. It comes from a space where ideas exist on a scale entirely beyond those of humans. Its wrongness and its self-consistent evil are so profound that it hurts to comprehend. At first, looking directly at it causes stinging actinic flashes in Marion's eyes, like ionizing radiation. But her perspective is still shifting, because she's still ascending. And as she ascends, ceasing to be human, she sees through the adversary and comes to understand instinctively how it is structured and how it is faulty and how those faults can be attacked. It turns to face her. When they meet, what happens is less a fight than it is mathematics, an equation settling at the end of a long, painful stretch of working, a blizzard of canceled terms. In the presence of wild light, vast tracts of SCP-3125, thought to meaningfully exist, prove not to. It is, in the new context that wild light provides, an ancient irrelevance. It folds up limb after branching limb, winking out of existence. It releases its grip on everything human. The mathematics is good. It happens in exactly the way Hughes modeled it back in the bunker, using the mimetic equivalent of fluid dynamics equations, taking thousands of processor years to simulate. After the finger limbs are gone, a livid, red-green eyeball remains. The Foundation, Wheeler, Protection Abstract punctures it, lasering straight through it from front to back. A colorless shockwave spreads through the eyeball interior, another quiet canceling out, leaving bright vacuum behind it, not even particles. And all that is left from the collision is the balance, a final wild photon outbound to the deepest limit of ideatic space, never to return. And what have we learned? 
It takes O5-8 a significant amount of time to answer his own question. He speaks with a measured level tone. He is in no hurry. We've learned that there is time missing from our world, almost a year of extremely recent history. And there are spaces, significant spaces, in every population center that cannot be perceived or entered. The cities are rerouting around them like mountains or radiation zones. And along with that time and that space, we've learned that there are enough people missing without any explanation whatsoever that if I spent the rest of my considerably augmented lifespan counting them, I could not count to that number. He pauses. And outside of the Noospherics Division, he says, no one, not a single person, is even aware of these thefts. Even those in the Division who made the discovery cannot recall what happened during that missing time. And no one can enter that missing space. The gap in reality itself can barely be perceived. It is this shocking, blinding absence. The unknown unknown. We've learned, we've cautiously hypothesized, that three to four years ago, an unimaginable anomaly entered our reality. And then sometime later, it left, taking all of that space and all of that time and all of those people with it. We do not know what it was or what it did. We've tried to find out, but the truth evades my best noospherists. The question fights back as if it doesn't want to be answered, and we do not know why the anomaly left, though my experts say that in the conceptual realm there's evidence, traces of what could have been a conflict, and in the distance, shining down on us, there's a great new star. He hesitates. Even I don't remember what happened. He continues, with his voice lowered, which I personally find deeply alarming, because this is recent history. Like nearly everybody alive, I must have been there. In some respect, I must have gone through it. But if we've learned nothing else, we've learned this. Humans can walk away from and forget anything. Civilization can go back to normal after anything. He sits in contemplative silence for some time. He stares at nothing. He worries, briefly, that he really does know the truth and that there's nothing anomalous preventing him from knowing it, that it's simple denial. But he won't say that aloud, even here. He says, And I wonder, what was the Foundation's role in this? Were we witness to this anomaly? Were we the ones who defeated it? Did we resist? Negotiate? Participate? We are here now, intact. We are back. To what do we owe that? Did we hide or run? Do we deserve to be back? Have we that right? We failed in our stated objective. These people are gone, and it's useless to pretend that they aren't dead. We failed orders of magnitude harder than we've ever failed before, despite which we remain clandestine and unknown to greater humanity which means that no one external to the Foundation can ever hold us accountable for our actions, or lack thereof. If what happened at the O5 Council meeting yesterday is any indication, we will certainly never hold ourselves accountable. What happened to those people? My people. Where are they? No one is just dead. No one is merely passively dead. Death is caused. SCP-055 cannot answer him. 
he says, his voice rising. These things happen, and we say to ourselves, never again. And a hundred years pass, and they happen, again. He says, last time, the time before this one, the time none of us remember, the time for which there is no evidence of any kind, but which I now realize must exist, that time, when we told ourselves and each other we must do better, what did we do differently from then on, and why didn't it work? He says, what does the foundation need to be, where does it need to be, and how far is that place from here? Can we see it from here, or is this it? He does not know, and after leaving the containment unit, he knows. He will not even remember the questions. Direct observation is harmful to Nima's species. Her mother died when she was a juvenile, killed instantly when a Foundation researcher took a close-up flash photograph of her face. The Foundation thinks her whole species is extinct, wiped out by infertility and disease as an indirect result of excessively close Foundation study. But they are not extinct. Some of them adapted. They fled across oceans and then inland. They grew thicker antimimetic armor. Nima is a fully grown adult sea gigantes, a massively vertically elongated quadruped, almost a kilometer tall at the shoulder. As 05-8's motorcade leaves Site 19, she is standing just beyond the site's perimeter with a crumpled metaspider in her mouth. She's unable to perceive the motorcade or the site itself any more than any human foundationer can perceive her. They only barely walk the same earth. The spider is a 200-meter-long bundle of legs, eyes, and chitin, long body parts dangling from each side of Nima's jaws. The spider convulses ineffectually. It can't escape. It is the last one. The spiders were numerous and tasty, but the ones who walk very slowly have a broad diet. Nima bites down, biting through the last of the spider's legs, which begin an achingly slow tumble to the ground, accompanied by a gout of bug juice. Nima tosses the spider's mauled thorax in the air and catches it in the back of her throat. She gulps it down, mostly whole, still twitching. She raises her head and vocalizes triumphantly, a deafening, inaudible, infrasonic warble. The call carries all the way to her mate and children on the horizon. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, join my Discord community, hire me on Fiverr, or help support me by becoming a patron for as little as $3 a month. Regardless of tier, all patrons get early access to every single episode. The links are in the description. I don't have the talent it takes to write a skip. All I do is read. Original authors make this podcast possible. So, credit to the original author. Their link's in the description. Show them some love as well. Consider becoming a member of the SCP Wiki. Upvote their work and maybe write a skip of your own. Maybe I'll read it here someday. You never know if you never try. The content of this podcast and content relating to the SCP Foundation, including the SCP Foundation logo, is licensed under Creative Commons Sharealike 3.0. 
and all concepts originate from scpwiki.com and its authors. This recording, being derived from this content, is hereby also released under Creative Commons Sharealike 3.0. I'm Grigori Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki, and we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply dash creative dash people or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.